Whether you're karaokeing with clients or traveling through four time zones in three days, using your new American Express Business Platinum card can get you one step closer to earning 120,000 membership rewards points after you spend $15,000 in purchases in your first three months, which means that every eligible purchase is a swipe in the right direction for your business. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business dash platinum. Amex Business Platinum. Built for business by American Express. This. Yeah, it's going to be a great party for all of us. Absolutely great. We want you there. And uh, if you're interested in going, go to uh, info at spacedoutradio.com. That's info at spacedoutradio.com. Prairie fire, minus 45 degrees Celsius. You got me by minus 10 degrees right now, buddy, but my wind chill is catching up. Yes, it is. We got about 40 seconds here before we're going to launch tonight's show. Search and Destroy, how you doing? Midwest Night Watchers, good to see you. Thank you guys for coming all in. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have a good night tonight. True Crime is on tap. BBD Warrior, how you doing? It's been a while. And uh, we definitely uh, glad you're back. And, uh, yeah, we want to see you in uh, Vegas, Millennium. And, uh, of course, everybody else who wants to show up. It's going to be a good time. There's Bill WD-40 opening up the Spreaker chat. Bill's going to lube us up for tonight's show. We got a good one. We got 10 seconds to go before we launch tonight. Let's get ready. Let's have some fun. Let's have some true crime tonight. That's on tap next. Horns up. Let's rock. the snowy mountains of central british columbia to you listening around the world this my friends is spaced out radio i am your host dave scott sitting in the captain's chair of sor headquarters we welcome you to tonight's show on our terrestrial affiliates around north america digitally on odyssey radio talk stream live and kpnl all of our archives are free join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio do old davy the favor hit that subscribe button you can follow us on twitter at spaced out radio instagram at spaced out radio show and on tiktok at spaced out radio our website spacedoutradio.com we have a plethora of features for you rock out to bubblefoot read the newswire check out our swag as well tonight's show is brought to you by chive charities help make the world 10 percent happier by visiting Chive Charities today, you can find them on our website. We got a power show tonight. We're going to step into the true crime bracket tonight with our guests, authors Frank Falzone and Duffy Jennings. They've got a brand new book out, which we will get to momentarily. Then in hour number three, we're going to head to the swamp. Swamp Dweller has a new spooky story for us. And Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio will join us for the cryptid report. We'll try and get in some news as well. Frank Felzon is a highly decorated and accomplished police inspector who investigated more than 300 murders and other cases during his 28-year career with the San Francisco Police Department, 22 of them 
in homicide detail. He played a key role in breaking the notorious Night Stalker case, investigated his childhood friend and former fellow cop for the murders of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, participated in the Zodiac, Zebra, and Juan Corona serial murder investigations and other high-profile cases. Now, Duffy Jennings is a prize-winning reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle in the tumultuous 1970s. His coverage included the City Hall assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Milk, the Patty Hearst kidnapping, and the Zodiac and Zebra serial murders. Put these two together, you have a great book that can be found on Barnes & Noble and on Amazon called San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. My inside story of the Night Stalker, City Hall murders, zebra killings, Chinatown gang wars, and a city under siege. You can get the book right now. This is one you want to add to your library. And it's a very big pleasure for me to bring in Frank Falzone and Duffy Jennings. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on Spaced Out Radio for the first time. It's such a pleasure to have you here, Frank and Duffy. Very much appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Good to be with you. Uh, Thank you, David. Uh, My pleasure to be with you. Gentlemen, you know, when you two come from totally different areas, one a police officer and one a journalist. Now, I know my time of being on the beat, Duffy and Frank, that we're not supposed to get along here. We're not supposed to work together on anything to make things happen. Yet here you two are with a a great new book out of of true crime and true stories, really telling the the underbelly of San Francisco during a very tumultuous time. Frank, how did this all come together for you guys? It was pretty amazing. Uh, I hadn't talked to Duffy in 30 30 years since I retired. And Duffy did handle... uh, for the Chronicle here in San Francisco, most of my um, high-profile homicide cases. Uh, we knew each other. I considered him a, a friend. Uh, we weren't that close. But about a year and a half, two years ago, out of the clear, I got a, a phone call from Duffy, and he told me about a book that he wrote, about a, a memoir of his, of his life, Uh, working for the Chronicle, and also some of the homicide cases, including a few that I had worked. Uh, That led to me reading his book. It was called uh, Reporter's Notebook. It was an excellent book. I enjoyed reading it. And when I called him back to congratulate him, he asked me if I ever thought of writing a book. And the answer was absolutely. But I could never find or be comfortable with anybody that was willing to write it. So Duffy asked, he said, Frank, we know each other. You read my book. If you like my style, I'd like to read your uh, material and call you back. And when he called me back, he says, I've got to write this. This is fantastic. And that's how a a marriage was made between a former Chronicle reporter and a San Francisco homicide inspector. Now, Duffy, uh, thank you for coming on in as well with us tonight. Duffy, the one thing I know about journalism is 
one of the toughest beats that we have is the crime beat because you have to kind of have feet on both sides of the ledger, both getting your sources on the on the dark side and along the police side as well. How are you able to balance that in, in your reporting of these horrific crimes for the Chronicle back then? It wasn't a particularly difficult balancing act, Dave. Um, in, in my role as the journalist, the police were frequently our primary source of information in a, in a crime situation. At least that's the starting point where we would get the details of uh, the crime that had occurred and what was known about it. And then we'd go from there to maybe look at other options for, to find in for more information and talk to friends of the victim or the employers or wherever else we could get additional information. But it, it's really a, 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 a relationship of mutual trust uh, more than necessarily, a, you know, a friendship, and it's it's not it's not the typical adversarial relationship between reporters and public officials like police officers. Um, we both had the same goal. Um, his was to get information out about crimes that would help maybe bring out public uh, tips or comments uh, or new leads, and for us, it was to build the story into a more complete uh, tale of what had actually happened and why. Very true. So when you came up with the idea of writing this book with Frank Duffy, I mean, how did that go over for you? You know, what what story did you want to tell? So it's, it's interesting in that because in my time at the Chronicle, which sort of overlapped the same period of time that Frank was working on a lot of these cases, um, probably more than any other uh, in terms of high profile and public awareness, uh, at, at least at that time, and even to a certain degree today, is the Zodiac case. And uh, this is an unsolved murder still uh, 50, 53 years after the, after the last and only killing of the Zodiac did in San Francisco in 1969. But yet here we are in our advanced ages and, and long retired out of our jobs, and we both still get uh, quite a number of inquiries and uh, people reaching out to us doing documentaries or books or working on 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 their own stuff about uh, offering new information about either that old case or they're doing, doing a documentary. I mean, Frank's been in dozens of documentaries over the years. I've been in several. Um, there was a character, my character was in the Zodiac movie played by Adam Goldberg. So I still get emails four or five a year from people saying, uh, we, you know, we want to talk to you about this old case. In this particular case, we both got an email from a UK uh, documentary company doing a, a piece about another another old famous crime here that's that we recount in our book that I won't go into detail. But I saw Frank's name, email address on that email, and that inspired me to reach out to him and just catch up and say what's what's doing. I had just published my own memoir, as he mentioned, about my years at the Chronicle in, in the shocking 70s, as we call it. Uh, and so there was a lot of mutual interest in in this. And, and I and I, as I listened to Frank, I thought, this guy is a storyteller. He, he remembers everything. He's got boxes of files and details of his cases and charts and, and his access to a ton of information. And I thought these are these are great stories, never really told by the, the cop himself who did the investigation. 
This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to keep you moving. With a full range of services from Pennzoil oil changes to tire rotations and more, we've got what your car needs, so you're ready for whatever's next. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care, that's a job for Jiffy. Visit JiffyLube.com to find a service center near you. And solve those cases. So when he started telling me about um, about the Night Stalker case and and uh, and the case with, with his old friend Dan White, who killed Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk, I said, this this story has to be has to be told. So uh, it was very easy for us to both uh, agree to, to sit down and start uh, start working on telling this, these stories. And we ended up with 13 of his most prominent, interesting, high-profile cases in this book. And the response has just been phenomenal. Excellent. Excellent. Frank, I want to bring you back in here for a moment. I mean, take us back to the 1960s, 70s. You know, I mean, for some reason, the West Coast from Northern California right up to British Columbia was absolutely filled with uh, serial killers everywhere. It seemed like it was the popular thing to do back then, which is grotesque as that sounds. But when did you start noticing the trend of, of these psychotic killers? You know, David, you brought up a good point. Uh, to me, it all seemed to start with the Vietnam War <clears throat> and people returning home from that war. And the, uh, if you think about San Francisco, the first place I wanted to be as a cop was to be as a homicide inspector. And once I got into detail, I wanted to work the big cases. Well, it became uh, insane. Uh, it seemed like every day I went to work, there was a new big case breaking. We had the uh, the zebra killers. We had the Zodiac. Uh, we had the Night Stalker. We had the Symbionese Liberation, Liberation Army. Uh, we had the Black Liberation Army. Uh, we had Patty Hearst. It was all happening about the same time. And it seemed like every day it was sheer bedlam in the homicide detail. Uh, we were so fortunate to have such dedicated men at that time. And we didn't know we were right in the middle of a storm. We had a job to do and we did it. And I'm so proud of the men that I work with and the success we had in clearing so many of these brutal, brutal cases. Uh, it was nightmarish, but for me, I couldn't wait to get to work and to see what was going to happen next. It was uh, both a crazy time and a very thrilling time to be working as a homicide in- inspector trying to solve the tough cases. When you got that first call for the Zodiac Killer, because that's obviously the most popular one that still goes on today, how did you get involved with that case? Well, I got involved in the Zodiac case when it was pretty much dormant. Uh, the two inspectors that had it was Bill Armstrong and Dave Toskey. Uh, those were the two original investigators. The Zodiac gets so much attention. And the fact 
to be told is there was only one murder that we know of, and that was a cab driver named Paul Stein. That was the one murder case in San Francisco. But be, because of the attention the Zodiac brought to himself with his cryptic messages and the uh, fact that he was sending these messages to the Chronicle and threatening to kill busload of children, uh, it was front page story for a long time. But for me, uh, in the early 70s, the big case was the zebra murders. It got very little attention because the subject matter was not something the media wanted to play up. At that time, uh, there was a group of, they called themselves death angels that were part of a Muslim mosque out on Geary Street in Fillmore in San Francisco who decided to try to start a race war. And they independently went around and killed that we know of 15 people in San Francisco. They would just walk up and randomly kill a man, a woman, child. It didn't matter as long as they were white. And that was really absorbing uh, the media's attention, particularly in San Francisco, not much out of San Francisco. Uh, today, historians say there was probably 72 of these death angel murders uh, throughout the state of California. Uh, so the zebra got a lot of attention and we ended up arresting seven individuals. Uh, four of them went to trial. Uh, they were convicted of first degree murder. Uh, my partner and myself personally arrested two of those individuals and uh, uh, they are now, um, uh, they're all deceased except for one who's still in prison. See, that surprises me, Frank, because I look at San Francisco as an outsider, and it is such a, a beautiful, multicultural-type city like Vancouver is, where I grew up close to, that you wouldn't think that there would be that sort of uh, violence out of ignorance like that. Well, you're absolutely right, David. Uh, what we witnessed and the times you're talking about is when I was a young boy, you take 1957, I was a sophomore in high school. San Francisco Police Department had 27 murders. And on Christmas Day, they solved the 27th case. They solved all of them. Well, during the 70s, we saw that number jump up to 150 murders in one year. And they were not your average cases where it was husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, neighbor. These were cases that were real whodunits, and you had to really uh, question people, actually beg people to help, uh, look through uh, anything and everything possible uh, under every rock, uh, turn over every stone, and look behind every bush, because we didn't have the technology that investigators have today. Uh, and we were fortunate. We weren't solving 100% like they did in 57, but we always produced very, very high solve rates. And for that, I was very pleased to be part of a very elite team in the San Francisco homicide detail. I want to bring Duffy in here for a quick second here. Duffy, you know, being part of a legendary newspaper like the San Francisco Chronicle that you were for a dozen years, I mean, 
covering the zebra killings, covering, you know, the remnants of, of the Zodiac killer and what was going on there. I mean, those were exciting times for a journalist. It, it was pretty much ground zero for what one crime historian called the golden age of serial murder in Northern California at that time. And, and, and touching on your question to Frank about, you know, San Francisco, you know, you're right about the San Francisco of the mid 1960s that opened its arms to thousands of young people coming from all over the country for the summer of love and flower in their hair. But because of the war uh, and the, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the outrage against it and the, the rise of demonstration and protests also brought this extremist counterculture of both political and racial groups that uh, were also wanting to be heard and seen, and so uh, and so it's, it 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 devolved really into um, to a community where, as tolerant as as many people perceived it to be, and still is, and of course this also involved a, a vast influx of gays to this area as well. Um, there was the resultant crime in in drugs and robberies and um, and and these these political assassinations, as Frank mentioned. You know the 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 underground, like the, like the Weather Underground and the and the Simonese Liberation Army and the 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 Black Panthers. All of that um, contributed to a to a, a lot of uh, violence and unrest in the community, even as. San Francisco was was welcoming, you know, people of all um, of all stripes at that time. So, to be a reporter, in, in, particularly in the in the early 1970s, was was amazing. We we like Frank would come to work every day, and some big news story would break. You could open the front page of the Chronicle on a given day in 1973, 74, and you'd see on the front page a picture about. The, either the, the kidnapping or the continuing search for Patty Hearst, there'd be there'd be a, a new zebra killing. There might have been a new letter from Zodiac, and on the and on the top of the front page, you're looking at Watergate news from Washington. So it was a crazy, crazy time, you know, uh, both politically and criminally, uh, not just in San Francisco, but on a national level as as well. Cops were being targeted all over the country. Hundreds of them were killed over a couple of years span there. Um, so it was a tough time to be a, a, a cop and a, and a homicide inspector. And this is what I, this is the, the story that I heard from Frank that I said needs to be told. Definitely. I, I, I could totally see that being in that newsroom at that time, did you ever get to hold or see or view any of the Zodiac's letters to the Chronicle? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yes. Wow. Um, now, as um, as Frank mentioned, that the two homicide inspectors on that case, Dave Toski and Bill Armstrong, were both featured in the in the David Fincher movie that actually didn't come out till two thousand seven. Um, but uh, the third main character of that movie was Paul Avery, the Chronicle reporter who really led all the coverage of Zodiac, the Zodiac case. And I, I was a young crime reporter at the time, kind of. 
This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Learning at Paul's knee, if you will, uh, a lot about the Zodiac case to the point that when he left the paper in the mid-1970s, I took over the responsibility for anything that occurred uh, after that time. There were a couple of new letters. But sure, we we saw the letters. Um, we, you know, we saw the bloody shirt drop out of the envelope of the cab driver that he sent in a letter claiming the responsibility for. Uh, it, it, was a, it was just a, a time where everybody was on edge. Every day, looking at the letters to the editor, was there a new one from him, uh, along with all these other stories that were breaking? My goodness. I mean, that I, I've never worked in a situation like that before. I mean, just getting handed major story after major story, left, right, and center, that's not really how the, the game works today, that's for sure. You know, where where uh, journalism has turned into very touchy feely type stories, rather than you know hardcore news journalism than what it was back then. Well, of course, it's very different. But remember, too, we're talking about a time period where there's no internet, no social media, no cell phones, no cameras all everywhere. They, they didn't even have computerized fingerprints in Frank's department until 1984. Uh, and so solving crimes was a lot harder. It involved a lot of legwork and knocking on doors and talking to people. And you, you couldn't just you know, pull up your browser and, and, and check somebody's background. So uh, for reporters, it was the same. You had to go out and make calls and talk to people and go to go to their houses and ring the bell and ask questions. Uh, but it, and, and, and newspapers were kings of the, of the news business. And radio, you heard immediately what had happened, but you heard for a minute or two. And then you had to wait for your morning paper to, to really find out a lot more about what happened. So it, it, was, a, it was certainly a different time technologically. Uh, but, you know, obviously what's going on today is, is, doesn't even compare those days. Frank, 45 seconds before we got to go to break here. For you, I mean, that had to be a lot of sleepless nights back then. Well, everything seems to happen uh, when the bars close at two in the morning. So yes, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of nights when you just get home, uh, you don't even get a chance uh, to put your gun away and handcuffs and your badge and the phone's ringing and you have to head in to another crime scene, another murder. Uh, We talked about it, Duffy and I, and we came up with the phrase, it was homicide on steroids during that period of time. Uh, There were killings, it seemed like, every day, sometimes two or three. Wow. Frank, I'm going to get you to hold on right there. Duffy, please stick around. Frank Falzon, Duffy Jennings. 
are here. They got a brand new book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. San Francisco Homicide Inspector Five Henry Seven: My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murder, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege. We'll be back right after this. All right, gentlemen, we're clear. Our YouTube audience uh, uh, can still hear us along with our po- our podcast audience, but our radio audience is silent right now. Uh, great start, guys. Great start. Dave, I'd like to mention, if you don't mind, and maybe we can do it again before the end of the show, is yes, you can get the book on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but uh, we also offer an opportunity to buy the to get the book with our autographs on it. At frankfalzon.com. Um, yes, or duffyjennings.com. But Perfect. either one... Um, it gives you that little extra if somebody's interested to have a personally autographed book. We uh, we like to send people to their those websites as Perfect. well. Perfect. I will mention that. And, uh, Frank, I have a question for you from one of our listeners, Lily Pond. My uncle was a San Francisco homicide detective during the Zodiac Spree. Did you know Telly uh, Slutvit? I knew Telly very, very well. Uh very likable man, and it was a misfortune in Telly's life when he and another homicide inspector named Walt Cracky, they both had heart attacks, and they were removed from the homicide detail for health reasons. That opened the door up for me and another inspector that was my partner at the time named Eddie Erlatz. So I actually was a replacement for Telly Sledvet in the homicide detail back in the early 70s. Oh, wow. Wow. Kind of weird how it all comes together somehow like that in the middle of internet radio. Yeah, Telly was a a fine man who uh, eventually retired and took over uh, uh, as a starting pro uh, out at the golf shop at Harding Golf Course. Uh, A very, very likable man. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, Lily Pond says, thank you, Frank, and appreciate you doing that, man. Appreciate you doing that. I was going to wear my New York Yankees hat, but I didn't want to hurt you guys uh, for losing out in the air and judge <laughs> sweep sweepstakes. Well, we got the second biggest fish. We lost the number one fish. <sighs> well, maybe I will. Uh, I actually saw your ballpark, drove by it uh, earlier this year for the first time. What a gorgeous area that ballpark's in. Oh, it's perfect. I mean, to sit in those stands and look out at the field and then look at the bay and see all the boats out there and all the canoes for all these uh, individuals that want to catch a ball into the McCovey Cove, it's a classic stadium. See, you would never. You know, Dave, yeah, go ahead, Duffy. Just as an aside, when I left the newspaper, I went to work for the Giants as their public relations director. Oh, nice. And, and spent 12 years there in the 90s uh, before that ballpark was, was built and opened. Right. Uh, so I still had to shiver through the candlestick years. My goodness. My goodness. At least, did you did you at least get fortunate enough to skip the Jeff Kent years? <laughs> I did, but but I was there for the '89 earthquake. That's for sure. Wow, wow, yeah that that would have been a hard time. That one there, 
Well, there were a thousand media from all over the world in the ballpark for the first World Series since 1962. So Mother Nature had other plans, though. Yeah, no kidding. You know, you you talk about the 89 earthquake. I had uh, tickets to that game. And I said to my wife, I will live long enough to see another game. You take your dad, and I'll guarantee you, you will see a game you will never forget. And that was the night of the earthquake. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah, my wife and uh, (coughs) fortunately a a police officer in uniform recognized my wife and took my father-in-law and my wife to safety. Wow. Wow. I couldn't even imagine. Couldn't even imagine what that would be like. And here my claim to fame was having to go through security just so I could watch a preseason Canucks game versus San Jose with the Queen in the building. <laughs> that was interesting enough. Yeah, I, I spent seven years as a uh, reporter for the Vancouver Canucks. And yeah. um, and that was a, a lot of fun when I did that. Got yeah, to see some- their hockey oh, yeah. Yeah, we uh, we can't win squad up here, but that's okay. That's okay. We got about uh, fifteen seconds, gentlemen. Okay, David. I hope you're having fun so far. That's great. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Good, good. All right, guys. Uh, five seconds. I'm just going to put you back on mute here for a second, and here we go. Second half of Space Out Radio is now underway. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate you tuning us on in here in hour number one of Space Out Radio tonight. I want to remind you that if you miss portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash Space Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. We got a great, great show about true crime out of San Francisco tonight. Frank Falzone and Duffy Jennings are joining us. One's a former police officer. One is a former San Francisco Chronicle journalist. And together they have come and and written a book, a great true crime book called San Francisco Homicide, Inspector 5 Henry 7. My inside story of the Night Stalker, City Hall murders, zebra killings, Chinatown gang wars, and a city under siege. You can get the books at frankfelson.com or duffyjennings.com where they'll autograph them for you or you can find them at Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Frank, explain to me and my audience, if you don't mind, what's it like when that call comes in for a murder or a homicide that you now have to take in? And how quickly do you develop the idea that this may be attached to some sort of serious? 
This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Feel killing. Well, there's an old saying in, in the homicide detail throughout the country, and we believe that your homicide scene, your crime scene, tells you a story. And sometimes that story is very clear, and you have an idea right away as to what occurred and why it occurred. Other times, it's much more difficult. As far as a serial case, you really don't know it's a serial case until you get into it. You take the Night Stalker, uh, and the Night Stalker case was murders in L.A., and eventually uh, San Francisco, when we got involved, uh, we had no clue that we'd eventually be tied in to the 15 or 20 murder cases that had occurred in the Los Angeles area. How did that come about? Because everybody thinks of the Night, night Stalkers being a, a Southern California type serial killer, yet here he was, uh, you know, encroaching in your territory, Frank. Well, what happened was we got a break right out of the box, and it was thanks to a, a sergeant named John Perkins working the Glendale Police Department. He had a brutal murder case, and he felt it was definitely tied to their uh, so-called uh, Valley Intruder or Walk-In Killer. This was the original name for uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. These were when the cases were happening in L.A. We knew about it up in San Francisco, but we had our own headaches and our own murders. It wasn't until the day my partner and I walked into a crime scene on Eucalyptus Street out by San Francisco Zoo and Ocean Beach that we were somehow being thrust into uh, all these L.A. murder cases. And this uh, sergeant in Glendale Police Department, he called us and he says, I'm looking to see if there's any tie-in to our case. He says, our uh, bullet, the casing, had a pink primer. Well, that's pretty rare. And the pink primer, 22 caliber, was exactly what we had. And... It was amazing. That break would eventually uh, lead to my partner and I breaking uh, the Night Stalker case. The, the case, when you, when you opened it up, how did, how did you learn about the, 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 pink, uh, the pink hue on, on the bullet casing? 
I'm sorry. Could you repeat that, please? The the bullet casing with the pink on it. How did you learn about that? Like, what what would trigger you to all of a sudden look at that and think, "Wow, I gotta, we gotta figure out what this is going on." Had you heard about that from L.A.? It was a key piece. It was a key piece uh, in our case. Uh, the bullet and ballistics were so vital in our case to give us a start, and that start. Uh, led to um, uh, checking with this uh, sergeant in the Glendale Police Department and finding out that uh, uh, his bullets uh, and our bullets probably were fired from the same gun. And we sent our criminalist down to Los Angeles and a ballistic match was made. And that was a link that tied San Francisco to the LA cases. Once that link was made, uh, this so-called walk-in killer, uh, the home intruder, became known as the Night Stalker. And this was a manhunt unequal to anything I had ever seen in the state of California. Everyone up and down the state uh, was alerted. People were gripped with fear. Uh, there was terror being portrayed in just about every community. Everybody feared it was one of the hottest summers, summers, and people had to lock their windows and lock their doors because of the fear of this animal crawling in and killing them. Wow. Now, Duffy, to bring you in here for a couple seconds regarding the Night Stalker and everything, how did you get tipped off to that? So this was an interesting thing when Frank and I first started to talk, and he mentioned to me that he had just been on uh, a Netflix four-part documentary about the Night Stalker. Uh, and I watched it, and Frank's interview is, you know, takes up largely the third episode in which he describes his role in the case. And I thought, um, this is a fascinating uh, piece of police work. Uh, and when, when he told me the story about this killer who'd walked into this home of this elderly Asian couple in the middle of the night, uh, crept into their bedroom, shot the husband in the head, uh, killed him instantly, and then shot the, the wife and then raped her and tortured her. And then just so so cavalierly left their bedroom, for left her, her for dead in the bedroom, walked into the kitchen, helped himself to the leftover food in the refrigerator from their dinner, vomited on their kitchen floor, and then went into the to the living room and scratched a pentagram on the wall, uh, you know, a, a Satan, a symbolic, uh, uh, a sat satanic symbol, and, and wrote uh, Jack the Knife or, or underneath it. And then, uh, uh, above all, the most bizarre thing is uh, Frank looked down and there was, there was uh, no mistaking it for a, a puddle of fresh semen on the floor. And this, this, killer had pleasured himself while praying to Satan. And when I heard, when I heard this, which I'd never heard about the case before, I said, this has to be the opening chapter of our book. It's actually the first four chapters, how Frank got involved in that case and solved that case. Um, so I, I had heard a little bit about the Night Stalker before that, but I hadn't read any books and I, you know, and I didn't, you know, this was 1985. So we were, we're talking about, a long time, 20, 30 some years 
since that, but but his remarkable de- recall of the detail of the case and telling it to me, I said, people have to hear this. Yeah, no kidding. I, I could I could just imagine what that's like. Frank, when you have a a story like the Night Stalker, which you're hearing of all of these grotesque, just insane type of murders in a spree down in LA, as a police officer, when it when it all of a sudden invades your territory, how how does that uh, affect you and the way you do your job in investigating that? Is there an immediate fear on that? Well, what we did, my partner and I immediately flew down to Los Angeles, and we spent three days working with the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, the Los Angeles Police Department, and we gleaned everything we could on their 15 murder cases. And it was definitely, uh, every one of them, very similar to our murder case. We knew we were looking for a very sick, disturbed, uh, psychotic killer who like Duffy said, uh, did satanic worshiping and pleasured himself because the devil was his, uh, his guardian angel and would keep him safe as long as he did heinous criminal acts and offered them up to the devil. Uh, it was uh, like no other case I'd ever worked. What we did when we got back from Los Angeles is I pulled every burglar report over three month period in San Francisco. And lo and behold, <clears throat> one of the burglary reports I pulled was a burglary out at Baker and Lyon Street in the Marina District. A dentist and his wife had gone out to dinner and they left the niece and her girlfriend who were downstairs asleep in their house. And around 10 o'clock, the night stalker crawled through the bathroom window after making a makeshift ladder, climbed into that bathroom window, left a fingerprint on the glass, got into the bathroom. Fortunately, he ransacked the house, took all kinds of jewelry upstairs. He never got downstairs, thankfully, because the dentist and his wife returned home and they were in the process of using the garage door opener to open their garage. When he peeked out of the window, We know that because the the drapes were disturbed and we could see that he had looked out, saw the dentist returning, and he left by the front door when the dentist was coming up through the garage, up the staircase with his wife. Fortunately for them and fortunately for the young niece and that daughter, uh, the Night Stalker never found them. But that report, uh, ironically, was made by a Northern Station police officer that turned out to be my oldest son, Dan Falzon. And Dan's report was very thorough. And we learned that a bracelet taken in that burglary had been recovered down in Lompoc, California. And this would be the break like none other that blew this case wide open. Incredible. That bracelet, go ahead. No, I'm just paying attention here. That That's just incredible how that bracelet could do that. Well, the break was that the dentist had inscribed his driver's license number on the inside of the bracelet. Uh, we got a match. Uh, I called the sergeant down in Lompoc that had an informant who had turned in the bracelet. And I asked him, 
This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. If I could speak to his informant, he said, adamantly, no. He said, this is my informant. I'm not giving him up. And I said, Sergeant, I said, with all due respect, if I find out that you're withholding evidence and I can prove you're withholding evidence and somebody's killed this weekend, I said, because this animal is killing every week. I'm coming down there personally and putting you in handcuffs. He told me to calm down. He said, Inspector, if my informant wants to talk to you, he'll call you. Well, within minutes, I got a phone call. This informant told me he got the bracelet from his mother. She lived over in San Pablo. I got the address and her phone number. I asked Mike Mullane, another inspector, my partner, Carl Klotz. We left immediately to head over to San Pablo. We walk in the door, we're interviewing a woman named Donna Myers and everything she is telling us. The only thing we knew when we left the Los Angeles area was that the suspect had a first name, Rick. And that was acquired by a Los Angeles Police Department solo motorcycle officer who had stopped him and wanted his identification. And he came up with a a dentist card with the name Rick on it. And then when the police officer wasn't satisfied, he bolted and ran, jumped a fence, ran through a park and disappeared. So we had that information by the name Rick. Well, Donna Myers is now telling us that this individual that she got the bracelet from was named Rick. He had bad teeth. He wore an ACDC hat. He had a, wore a members only jacket, all the details that witnesses had provided to us from the LA Police Department, Sheriff's Department, and from our own investigation. So everything was matching up and my adrenaline was beginning to flow. I was really pumped because I knew we were on the trail. So I said, how did you get the bracelet? And Donna says, I got it from my boyfriend, Armando Rodriguez. Armando and Rick, we're best friends. They came here from El Paso, El Paso, Texas, and they're best friends. And I said, where's Rick live? She said, El Sobrante. El Sobrante is just a few miles away from San Pablo. So I left Inspector Mike Mullane with Donna Myers. She was not to use the phone. Uh, Carl, myself, and the San Pablo police officer We went over to El Sobrante. We got to the house and there was a huge gate. 
uh, I'd say eight to 10 feet high, 10 feet wide. The house was up a road and set back. I looked across the street and there was uh, the El Sobrante Fire Department. Went over there, used their phone, called the house. Armando answered. I told him, it's important, I have to talk to you. I'm from the homicide detail. I made him believe I had information maybe about his family. I never said that, but that's what I inferred. So he finally agreed to meet me down at the gate. Well, when he shows up at the gate, he's got two growling Doberman pinchers with him. And there's a steel gate separating us. And I said, Armando, there's no way I'm going to talk to you uh, with two dogs growling in my face. If you want this important information, come out from behind that gate. I turned my back, started to walk towards the San Pablo policeman's car. And when I turned around, thank God, Armando had stepped out from behind the gate. The dogs were on the other side. And now I was face to face with Armando. And I said, Armando, I have information that your good friend, your buddy, Rick, is the Night Stalker. I need to know his last name. And he said, let me tell you something. I know firsthand, my friend Rick is not the Night Stalker. He was killing people, uh, the Night Stalker in Los Angeles, and Rick was up in San Francisco. And when Rick was up in San Francisco, uh, people were dying in LA and vice versa. He's not the Night Stalker. He said, it's not your job. That's my job. I need to know his name. And he started cussing at me, F U, uh, M F. He called me every name in the book. And so I said, Well, you're under arrest for possession of stolen property. That bracelet was definitely stolen. He was linked to a hot prowl burglary. I patted him down. Uh, my partner, Carl, instinctively opened the back door of the San Pablo police car. I put him into the back seat. The uh, San Pablo policeman got into the driver's side behind the steering wheel. My partner got in the back seat next to uh, Armando. I got into the front uh, passenger seat. I leaned into the back. The car wasn't moving. I could see out the back window six El Sobrante firemen standing on the sidewalk watching every move we were making. The San Pablo cop was not moving the car. So I said, look, Armando, please help me. We can't let Rick kill anymore. It has to stop today. I'm looking at this guy who was an alleged Satanist also, and I'm looking at him and I didn't realize I had closed my right fist. So when he saw my fist closed, he came up with his fist, called me an MF, swore at me several more times. Does you want to fight, you MF? And he, once his fist came up, I learned a long time ago, you don't take that first punch in the face. My right hand flew into the back seat. I hit him right below his left eye. He fell over onto my partner, Carl. When he came back up, Carl pushed him up. He dabbed his left eye and he could see some blood on his finger. He had a small gash under his eye. And now he's calling me every name in the book. UMF, you think you're a tough SOB. Well, I'm not afraid of you. And his fist come up a second time. 
is that as hard as you can hit? He says to me. I said, no, I'm not a tough guy. And that's not as hard as I can hit. And at this point, I lost it. And I had never done this in over 300 cases of interviewing suspects. Never used my hands. And I looked at him. I said, you know, Armando, I am going to show you how hard I can hit. And I put my fist up against the windshield. And I started over the top as if I was going to land the most powerful blow I could. And I said, pretty boy, I'm going to split you all the way from the top of your head down to your behind. And just as I'm coming over the top, he fell back, made his arms into a cross, and he hollered, Richard, Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez. Those two words broke our San Francisco Night Stalker murder case and broke all 15 of the Los Angeles murder cases. Wow. My mind was in a whirlwind. I got back to the office, called all the agencies involved, and I told them, Richard Ramirez is your suspect. That night at 7.30, all the departments involved, the principal departments, the LAPD, their chief of police, Sherman Block, the sheriff, and his two detectives, my partner Carl and I, and our chief of police, Con Murphy. We had a three-way conversation. And immediately, Sherman Block, the L.A. sheriff, he says, I want your men to stand down. My chief looked at me, and I shook my head. I said, no way. Everybody in the Hall of Justice knows our case is made. We stand down, and somebody's murdered this weekend. And they can show that we had information, and we withheld it. How's that going to play out in the press? And my chief, thank God, relayed that information. And I give Daryl Gates a lot of credit. He said, gentlemen, I agree with San Francisco. Tonight at 10 o'clock, we're all going to make a broadcast. And that broadcast is going to alert the whole state of California about Richard Ramirez being the night stalker. And his picture will be on every newscast, every major newspaper. And within 24 hours, Richard Ramirez was in custody. I'm dumbfounded right now. Absolutely blown away and dumbfounded. You know, you just said goosebumps, I think, down thousands of our listeners at that moment. I mean, when you got that name, did you ever – we got about a minute to go here, Frank, before we got to go to break. Did you get the opportunity to to actually interview Richard Ramirez? I I never did by the – ironically, we were asked by the – Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to come down that Sunday and place our murder warrant on Richard Ramirez so that they could work up their cases. So he was being held on our murder warrant, but by that time he had an attorney and we could not talk to him. But in the end, Armando Rodriguez uh, was a born again. He saw the light. He testified for the prosecution. He was giving immunity And the last time I talked to Armando, he said, Inspector Falzon, we didn't start out in the best of terms, but I have so much respect for you. He said, thank you for setting me straight. I will never lead a life of crime again. I'm going to college. And he says, I'm going to become a physical therapist. And that's the last time I talked to Armando. 
He did testify. You know what? Let's hold it right there. Frank Falzone, Duffy Jennings. What a great power book they have written. San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry Servant. My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege. Go to Frank Felson or Duffy Jennings to get your autographed copy today. Fantastic. I'm just pumped right up after that. Like, I literally, I had goosebumps sitting on the edge of my seat here. Holy cow. So, Dave, there's a there's a little um, epilogue to that story about Frank never actually having been able to interview Ramirez, but they did come face to face three years later after the trial uh, and, and Ramirez was convicted and sentenced to, to death and was on his way to San Quentin when, when the, uh, the marshals brought him to San Francisco to be booked uh, on the murder case that Frank got involved with in the first place. Just in case something went wrong with the conviction or the appeals were successful, they'd, there'd be another case to hold him with. And they were in they were in the city prison, uh, booking him for the murder in San Francisco, as he's on his way to San Quentin. And Frank starts to walk away, and Ramirez says, "Hey, Falzon." And Frank didn't even know that guy even knew who, who his what his name was or who he, who he was. And he turned around and he held up this palm with the with the pentagram drawn in it as he had done during his trial and said uh, i bet you'd like to know about those two old ladies up on telegraph hill which flank was flabbergasted because he, he didn't make any connection what he was talking about well it turned out on the months before any of the la cases this guy had killed two old women in their apartment in san francisco on telegraph hill Wow. And he said, I I did a nice job there, didn't I? Or something like that. And it was, and off he went to San Quentin. Of course, he died of cancer in prison. The death penalty was lifted while he was there. And, and of course, he never was executed. That's just, I don't know what it would be like to all of a sudden have a serial killer like Ramirez, you know, call out my name and say, by the way. Like that would I that that's that's things that nightmares are made of. Well, Frank's seen a few nightmares <laughs> in his time. Now, the way I looked at him, uh, David, he was a punk. He was a coward. He needed a gun or a knife. He had to sneak into your house. That's not a brave guy. That's a coward. And he had to be high on cocaine. I looked at him like he was. He was absolutely nothing. Wow. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. When we go live again, you might want to ask about uh, what Duffy brought up about the conversation I ended up having with him. I can do that. I am pretty skilled at, at doing that. So uh... <laughs> You're very skilled, David. Well, I hope you you gentlemen are having a good time with us tonight. Uh, this has oh. just just been fantastic radio tonight. Fantastic radio. You know, it's great to just have this much time to talk about these cases because there's so many of them. And, you know, we haven't even touched on 
Dan White and his assassination of Mayor Moscone, not Moscone, but Moscone and, and Harvey Milk is a whole nother chapter in Frank's life uh, that they grew up together as kids in the same neighborhood and um, it's just a whole nother story. Well, well, the book is full of 13 wonderful, wonderful, interesting, intriguing homicide cases. Yeah, I got to go order this. I got to go. You'll, order. Lo- you'll love it. <laughs> you'll love it, David. I promise you. And it's F-A-L-Z-O-N. Z like zebra. Because I've been called Frank Falcon, Frank Falzoni, but it's Falzon. F-A-L-Z like zebra, O-N. Well, let me. And we'd be glad to send you a autographed copy. Hold on. I'm going to buy it right now. I got to, uh, okay, I got to go to your website. Why don't we send, why don't you just let us send you one? E- email and address. I mean, you're giving us a lot of exposure here. Yeah. Send one of us your address. Oh, and we'll that, put one in the- oh that'd be a nice Christmas present. Thank you. Well, I don't know if you'll get it by Christmas, but yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All I, right, with you, Frank. I can't help it, Frank. Are you, are we plugged in? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be losing you guys. Sadly, you might have to carry carry this. Uh, my computer says five percent. Mm. Oh, you don't have, you don't have a charger. charger. Move your chair. I can plug it in over here. Okay. Can you help me? So, Dave, um, you have a, a direction you want to go? Then you want to talk about other cases and uh yeah absolutely i want to get into the case uh, of the murder of the mayor because i mean that's frank's uh best friend growing up there that he had to arrest and uh you know we'll get into a lot more of that and uh i know he had some finishing thoughts about the the zodiac we do have a, a couple of audience questions coming up here as well that i've got saved in the system so we got lots to chat about here and you know what? Hell, if we got to bring you back, we got to bring you back to talk more about this. <laughs> I'm good with that. Oh, I I just love story, shows like this and stories like this. It just makes me happy. Oh, I've got my charger plugged in. Am I in position? Yeah, you look beautiful. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, I'm going to put you back on mute. We're going to get going here in like five seconds. Thank you, Maggie, for the super chat. Here we go. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and on Facebook Spaced Out Radio Show. Second hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Thank you so much for tuning us in on a true crime night. We very much appreciate earning your listening ears wherever you are on this beautiful planet we call Earth. Hello to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America, digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live at KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. And I know you got it here somewhere, Clam. Somewhere out there. What do you got for us? Uh, Let's see here. 
Um, Navafana. Navafana is your password. Use it wisely, space travelers, as the clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website, spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot. Read the Newswire. Check out our swag as well. You can learn about our Vegas get-together next year. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go, second hour with a great, great pair of authors. Frank Felzon, Duffy Jennings, they have a book called San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. My inside story of the Night Stalker, City Hall murders, zebra killings, Chinatown gang wars, and a city under siege. And these two gentlemen have collaborated on this book. Frank Falzon is a former 28-year member of the San Francisco Police Force. Duffy Jennings is a reporter, formerly of the San Francisco Chronicle. And gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Just a great night of radio right going on here. Great to be with you, Dave. Frank, right before the break, you were talking about when you broke the the name of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and 24 hours after you got the name, he was arrested. But there was an interesting point that you brought up during the break that I would love for you to go into detail about before we get to some audience questions. And that is the fact that Richard Ramirez, you'd never spoken to him, yet he knew who you were. Uh, yes. Before I get into it, uh, David, I'd like to explain to your audience. They're probably wondering, most people do, what does 5 Henry 7 mean? Well, 5 stood for the Inspectors Bureau. Henry was representative of the homicide detail. And 7 was myself. 5 Henry 7 was what Operations Center and Communications Whenever they wanted me, that's who they would call, 5 Henry 7. Getting back to what you asked me about regarding did I ever eventually end up speaking with Richard Ramirez, there came a point in time when he was convicted of 15 murders down in the Los Angeles County uh, Courthouse. And he was then being transported to San Quentin Prison. While en route my district attorney requested that. This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. These uh, marshals bring him to San Francisco so that we could place our murder warrant on him for the 
Mr. and Mrs. Pan murders that got us involved in the case in the beginning, just in case uh, the Los Angeles cases were overturned, we could still hold them in custody and try them on our murder case. There was some talk about a lack of uh, professional attorneys representing him. So the, there was some question regarding the LA cases. Uh, eventually, I met Richard Ramirez up inside San Francisco City Prison. My partner and I were booking him in and during the process, he's rattling about how he was offered a, a spot on 60 Minutes and he's talking about how the LA uh, Sheriff's detectives took all the credit and they were, you know, you fouls on you, you broke the case. And, and I'm looking at him like, you know my name? So he was eventually booked in on our murder case and the bailiffs are leading him away. And I'm heading to the elevator and he hollers, hey, Falzon. And I turned around, I looked at him, kind of puzzled. I said, what? And he held up his hand and he had the pentagram and he's laughing that heinous laugh. And he says, you know, Falzon, you would really like to know about those two old ladies, wouldn't you? And he really caught me off guard. And I, I said, what are you talking about? What two old ladies? He said, you know, the two old ladies up on Telegraph Hill, that was me. And the last time I seen him, he was laughing, walking away. And it hit me, the two old ladies, it was the Caldwell sisters. One was about 72. The other one was 58. They lived on Telegraph Hill. Some animal had gotten into their apartment and hacked them to death. One of them had gone to the window trying to open the window to scream out. He pulled her head back and sliced it from one end to the other. In the end, after we did all our homework, uh, we were able to show and responsibly that he committed five murders in San Francisco. Uh, the Pan case, both Mr. and Mrs. Pan, the Caldwell sisters, and a 10-year-old beautiful little Asian girl who had been kidnapped raped and then crucified down in a basement in the Tenderloin in a dingy hotel. Uh, that was also proved to be Richard Ramirez along with the 15 murders in Los Angeles. Very, very uh, sadistic killer. Uh, never quite had a case quite like that. And uh, I feel very, very satisfied with the role we played in getting that animal off the street. Duffy, I want to ask you from a media point of view regarding this. I mean, when you have somebody like Richard Ramirez who, or the Zodiac killer who is taunting police, taunting the media, taunting uh, the public at any way they can, I mean, at, at some point in the reporting, do you have to be wary about what you say and how you report it considering you don't want to tip off that it's getting to you because they're trying to suck you into the story to make themselves more infamous? That's always a concern uh, in a news organization. Uh, I mean, even as you're doing your best to just 
uh, lay out the facts of a story, um, there's always you know some personal bias. It's really really hard to avoid, but but you do your best to present a fair uh, case in every situation. And yet, in a in a situation where uh, where a, a, a killer or a suspect is making threats through the newspaper, as Zodiac did, and he'd write letters. And Frank mentioned earlier how he uh, he threatened to start. Uh, shooting kids getting off a school bus, picking them off one by one as they got off the bus. Some people might remember this as the plot line in the first Dirty Harry movie with Clint Eastwood, uh, in which they actually use that same plot with a sniper. Uh, But you have to be careful about threats because um, on the one hand, yes, you don't want to panic the community. And on the other hand, as Frank said, if you withhold information and and something terrible happens and you find out later that maybe you could have stopped it, or at least given people some warning, uh, then that's a worse outcome. So in the case of the Zodiac, for instance, um, the editorial staff at the newspaper spent quite a bit of time discussing it, but deciding in the end that uh, it was more in the public interest to, to disclose this threat uh, in, in the letter from Zodiac and let people... Um, at least be wary about it. And of course, it set the whole Bay Area on edge for days afterwards. Uh, people kept their kids home from school or they drove them to school or they walked them to school or they made sure they didn't take the school bus, whatever the results were. I, I hear from people today, 50 years on, saying they, they will never forget the night, uh, the nights of the days that uh, Zodiac was was active and killing randomly, and who might be next? And they they were terrified to leave the house. So, yes, it, you know it's it's a difficult decision every time there's a threat. Even today, publicly, threats against buildings, individuals, uh, people, uh, whatever it might be, um, there's always a decision editorially as to what's the wisest, smartest way to go in terms of disclosing that information. Uh, so we didn't have that situation in San Francisco vis-a-vis Richard Ramirez. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody in L.A. was was terrified of this guy for months on end. That The killings in San Francisco that Frank talks about all occurred before the L.A., months before the L.A. Uh, siege began in the summer of 1985. And, um, and so... Uh, so I'm sure it was satisfying for Frank to at least have some resolution about the Caldwell sisters and the other killing of the little girl, um, just so maybe their families will have, you know, whatever counts for closure these days. But, um, yeah, it's it's always a, it's always a, a difficult decision about how to handle threats. And that's where we go back to the beginning of our conversation in the first place is where it's important for reporters to work closely with law enforcement as to what's in the best interest of the community. Very you know, Frank, come to reporters with information about crimes, uh, stolen jewelry. Uh, there's, a, there's a real important case in our book about a terrible crime on, on Petrero Hill of a young couple uh, assaulted and um, killed, and, and the wife was raped and tortured again. Um, and and that guy was caught through the disclosure of stolen jewelry by telling the newspaper and the TV station to print pictures of what was taken in case a, a guy working in a jewelry store would recognize it or a pawn shop recognize it when it was brought into him. And that's exactly what happened. I want to ask you, Frank, 
In regards to the Zodiac Killer, just one quick question about that. I meant to ask it earlier. Knowing that this case has technically still not been solved, I mean, there's still dozens upon dozens of rumors of who who was Zodiac. Why do you think this case has been so difficult to finally put a lid on it? There were two pieces of uh, physical evidence left at the crime scene. A bloody fingerprint and everybody that had anything to do with that crime scene was cleared as far as leaving that bloody fingerprint. So experts decided that had to be the print of the suspect. That print has never matched up to any of the thousands that it's been checked against. The other piece of evidence was the handwriting samples. And again, nobody has conclusively figured out that those handwriting exemplars matched any individual. So to this date, the case remains unsolved. My partner and I, we were also involved in the trailside killer with David Carpenter. And ironically, when we put away David Carpenter, and this was another serial murder killer, a vicious, uh, psychotic individual who was very, very much a genius. And we always felt that once uh, David Carpenter was incarcerated, he's still in San Quentin, the Zodiac disappeared. Now, it very well could be that the Zodiac died or he was incarcerated, but we always felt that he fit the profile of the Zodiac, David Carpenter. Wow. Is, would that be your theory on who it was? Uh, David Carpenter was known as the trailside killer. Uh, he committed all kinds of murders up on Montam and then also down in the Santa Cruz area. And uh, we had a case, my partner and I, 17th hole of Lincoln Golf Course, beautiful woman jogging along a trail, a beautiful trail where you have a view of the ocean, the, the rocks, and this animal comes out of the bushes and stabs her to death uh, multiple times, self-inflicts a wound into himself. And instead of going to San Francisco General, he checked himself into uh, Marin General across the bay in Marin County. And he said he uh, was bitten by a dog. But the doctor that examined him wrote down self-inflicted wounds. So he was definitely our murder suspect in the Mary Frances Bennett case, the young jogger, and also the multiple murders on Tam Hill and uh, the Santa Cruz cases. So David Carpenter, in my opinion, could very well be the Zodiac killer. Incredible. Incredible. Is, is there a time where that will, you think, ever come to conclusion, or is it going to be remain an open case the next 50, 100 years? Well, it can come to a conclusion if somebody can come up with the right name and, in the, and the bloody fingerprint is identified or handwriting exemplars. But, but my opinion, it's going to take uh, some sort of break uh, linkage to the uh, physical evidence from that uh, Stein murder case, the cab driver that was killed in San Francisco. Uh, it's going to take something like that to break the Zodiac case. 
Duffy, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to add that um, that I, I maintain a close uh, contact with Inspector Toski even after he not, not only left the homicide detail but then retired from the department, went into a uh, kind of a private security role and, and even into his retirement. From that, I would get together with him once a year or so. We'd have coffee or a sandwich together. Uh, it, it ate at him so much that he never solved that case that he thinks that it was the the cause of some of his actual physical ailments and ulcers and other, other things. But, but you know, Dave and, and his partner, Bill Armstrong, both now uh, gone, passed away, and unfortunately, um, probably looked at more than 2,500 cases and if and if you are suspects and if you look at the zodiac film the 2007 film obviously it's a hollywood thing and it focuses on on the one guy arthur lee allen uh as as the as the suspect for zodiac but he too was later ruled out uh by dna he's no longer alive uh so people ask me all the time you know the same question you just asked Frank, and and the answer is the same. It's going to be somebody who comes up with something in a closet that you know that's actually ties physical evidence to a person, uh, you know, or or the fingerprint. And you know, there've been again, the Chronicle reporter today who covers Zodiac gets four hundred emails a year from people saying, "I know who this is. This is my father, my uncle, my brother." Uh, you got to check this out. Here's the details. It's all circumstantial. It's never been, none of them have ever panned out to be anything. And as Frank says, it's still an open, cold case. And, you know, probably in our lifetime will remain so. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I want to shift gears here, Frank, because you had the unpleasurable experience of having to arrest your best friend. Yeah, it, it, it truly was your worst nightmare. I was, I was down in the district attorney's office uh, talking about a case ready to go to trial when the lieutenant called me and I went upstairs and he says, get up to City Hall right away. There's been a shooting, a shooting at City Hall. He says it involves the mayor's office. Well, if you remember, uh, prior to the shooting of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Melk, 10 days before there had been the Jonestown massacre of 400 people or more uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. So there was articles written in the Chronicle about disciples coming to San Francisco to kill politicians. So as I'm driving to City Hall, all I'm thinking about is one of the disciples that got away from Guyana is now in San Francisco and has shot somebody in City Hall. So I arrived at City Hall. My partner and I ran up the staircase. And at the top of the stairs, I met Sergeant Jim Molinari, who was the mayor's bodyguard. And I said, Jim, what do we have? He says, Frank, the mayor is dead. I said, the mayor, George Moscone, is dead? He said, yes. I said, Jim, is there a suspect? And let me tell you, just hearing the mayor has been shot and killed was like a sledgehammer hit me over the head. But what came next was even worse. I said, do we have a suspect? And he says, yes, Dan White. 
I said, damn white. Damn white was like a kid brother. He had worked with me at Northern Station. He was an all-star softball player on my state championship team two years in a row. He was the shortstop that umpires said to me was the best ball player they'd seen in 20 years. He was a great athlete, beautiful wife, children. Why would Dan White murder anybody? This was a, the all-American boy, good-looking, well-fit, kept himself in top shape. I can remember like it was yesterday. He walked in the homicide detail. He was now a San Francisco fireman. He says, hey, Frank, as he walked over to my desk, so I want you to be the first to know I'm going to run for city supervisor for our old neighborhood, and I'd like to have your support. I didn't offer him my support. I looked at him. I said, are you crazy? Why do you want to be a city supervisor? You're a great fireman. You're a great cop. You served your country as, as a paratrooper. Why do you want to be a city supervisor? He said, because that's what I want to be. I want to help our old neighborhood. I said, how are you going to do that? And he says, I'm going to do it the old fashioned way, Frank. I'm going to knock on every door and I'm going to tell people who I am and I'm going to be there fighting for them. Well, he won that election, but also another neophyte, a man named Harvey Milk was the first gay elected official anywhere in the country. He was nominated in the Castro area where the gay community had settled. And he was also a supervisor. And right out of the box, Dan and Harvey hit it off. Harvey was invited to Dan's son's baptism. One of the few supervisors that was invited. My wife and I were invited. Unfortunately, I was working another murder case. We couldn't go. But that friendship between Dan White and Harvey Milk deteriorated over time. Uh, Harvey had his progressive ways. Dan had his more conservative ways. And at that time, the vote was always six to five, leaning towards the conservative way in San Francisco. So when Dan resigned, it gave Harvey an opportunity to tell George Moscone, we don't want him back. We want somebody like ourselves, very progressive, very liberal. Wow. Well, Dan had already seen George Moscone, and George promised him, Dan, you got your job back. If I have anything to say, which he did, it was all up to Mayor Moscone. You have your job back. Well, Dan, unfortunately, when he was leaving the Hall of Justice that day, heard Harvey. Hold that story right there, Frank. We're going to go to break here for the final time with Frank Falzon, Duffy Jennings, their book, San Francisco Homicide Inspector, five, seven, or 5 Henry 7, My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and the City Under Siege. We'll be back. Son of a gun. Holy cow. On the edge of my seat again. It was a nightmare. I bet. I mean, that's putting emotion into things, that's for sure. Absolutely. Every chapter in the book is like that. Uh, Duffy did a hell of a job uh, writing my stories, and 
and uh, none of it is fluff. It's all very factual, and it's very real, and very heart rendering. Don't forget uh, to get his address. Yeah, I'll send so it to you. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you. No, David. thank you very uh, much. The boss, the boss is here, and she's still coaching. No problem. Are you familiar, Dave, with kind of what happened with Dan White and ha- and the ultimate um, thing about his trial and the verdict and all of that? No, no. Okay. Being Canadian, that one was uh, a little bit out of my territory. That's well, a it's a gut wrenching story. Fr- Frank can tell you. I don't know how much time you have, but uh, you know about it. Interrogating Dan, uh, and then there was a trial. Uh, in uh, so the, the murders happened in November of '78. The trial happened in May of 1979, um, and there was a very lenient verdict, and the city rioted. Uh, thousands of people rioted at, at city hall and turned overturned police cars and set them on fire, and a lot of cops were injured. People were injured, but Dan ended up going to prison. Uh, and serving a little less than five years. Oh, wow. Uh, but that wasn't the last that Frank saw of Dan White, and there's a hell of a story that happens after he gets out of prison. Well, we'll get into that, and uh, like I said... This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com span. That's MeUndies.com S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Uh, we'll try and uh, get to some audience questions as well because we got a few of them built up here as well for you gentlemen. And uh, uh, tonight has been f- just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I-, I was hoping it would go like this, and damn it, we Glad got it. it. Glad to hear it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Thank you. And... Uh, yeah. Still cold. If Donna wants uh, to come over and bring a blanket over. I did. I did. I left it outside your door. Well, it's frozen now. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll come back with another one. Okay, if you don't mind. Don't don't get her going, David. <laughs> I will be down. <laughs> I will be down in San Francisco in March. But will I, you be doing your show? No, city? no, I will be emceeing a UFO conference down there. I'm just not sure the weekend yet. I think it's around the 22nd or somewhere around there. And uh, they hold it uh, right by, I believe it's the Double Tree Hotel, ju- just about 10 minutes, five minutes up the road from uh, 
the airport. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I will be down there again. If you like UFOs, you could come join us. That's the fun stuff. We've got about uh, 90 seconds here. Okay, but you're very satisfied with the oh, way it's going? I'm, I'm more than satisfied. I'm thrilled. I'm already getting uh, listeners in our chat room here saying that we've got to bring you guys back again to f- fill in more lifetimes of stories like this. Well, we got 13 stories we could tell you about. There, there's a really good story about the day Frank got in a shootout with a holdup guy when he was off duty. Uh, it's, you know, again, it's another story that takes 10, 15 minutes to tell, but uh, it's, it's not a homicide so much as it is Frank's, you know, literally under fire uh, from 10 to 15 feet away. Oh, my. And, uh, and exchanging. <laughs> the, thing, the, the thing Duffy's talking about regarding that um, shooting, uh, I, I had cover. I was behind a car. I had cover. I was safe. And then a citizen pulled up and got out of the car and was going to walk in the store. And he was going to be either shot and killed or a hostage. So I left my cover to save him. And when I'm out in the open, the holdup guy comes out like he's carrying a football, except it was a gun and a bag of money. And when I said, police freeze, he came up Fired two shots with a forty-five. How he missed me, I'll never know. I fired one shot. Hold on, gentlemen. It went through his. Hold on, gentlemen. the halfway point of Spaced Out Radio tonight. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. Very much appreciate earning your listening ears. I want to remind you that if you've missed portions of this show or others, check out our free archives at youtube.com forward slash Spaced Out Radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. For the final time tonight, authors Frank Felzon, Duffy Jennings, they are here promoting their book, San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7. My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege. Frank was a police officer for 28 years. Duffy Jennings is formerly of the San Francisco Chronicle. And right before the break, Frank, you were talking about your your friend David White, where we were. he was uh, a suspect in the murder of San Francisco's mayor. Uh, yes, Dan White. I was informed was the suspect in the killing of uh, Mayor George Moscone. I would find out much later that he also shot and killed on the other side of uh, City Hall, uh, Supervisor Harvey Melk. 
uh, he intended to take his own life. Uh, he went to uh, NS Avenue in Golden Gate. There was a doggy diner, and he put a phone call into his wife, told her what he did, and that he was going to kill himself. She begged and pleaded him not to kill himself, to meet her at St. Mary's Cathedral on Gough Street, about two blocks away. So he met her in the church. She convinced him to turn himself in at Northern Station. And that's what they did. So I left City Hall. I was told he was in custody. I, I went to Northern Station, and two of my buddies from Homicide had picked him up and brought him down to the homicide detail, placed him in the interrogation room, and waited for me. When I walked into that interrogation room, I, I, I was like an older brother figure to Dan. Dan was like a kid brother. We had so much uh, time together at Northern Station, on the ball field. Uh, he was just, uh, I, I, to this day, I can't imagine him killing anybody. He was a gentleman. I never heard him swear. He was just, in my opinion, a nice guy. And now I'm walking into a room and I'm going to interrogate him. I look at him and I said, what the hell could you be thinking? And he looked at me and it was like a pressure cooker and the lid blew off and tears came streaming down from his eyes down the cheeks of his face. And he says, Frank, Frank, I want to tell you everything. And I looked at him. I said, Dan, if I'm going to take your statement, we're going to do it right. I left that room, went to my desk, locked up my gun, grabbed my tape recorder, fresh cassette, and I hollered over at my old partner from the days in the Fillmore Beat, Eddie Erdlatz. I said, Eddie, come in and help me. Uh, we're going to interrogate Dan White. So Eddie joined me in the interrogation room. I had no clue. And this would become an issue uh, when everybody wants to play morning, uh, Monday morning quarterback. I had no clue what happened up at City Hall. Uh, cops could care less what's going on in city politics. We're very simple people. All we care about is protecting the city, uh, protecting property, protecting life. Well, now I'm going to question Dan White on two murder cases, and I'm totally in the dark. So I advised him of his rights. He said he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to tell me everything. So I said, Dan, go ahead, tell me a narrative. You were a former cop. You were a San Francisco fireman. You had been a paratrooper. So you know how this works. Tell me in your own words, what happened today leading up to the murders of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk? Well, he went off. He gave a self-serving statement, sobbing heavily, crying, convulsing, and he confessed to not only shooting uh, George Moscone, and he confessed to shooting and killing Harvey Milk. Uh, I knew for a fact that there were people trying to get in to shut down the interview. Attorneys were right outside the door. Once I had the confession, it lasted for, I believe, a little over half an hour. 
short of 45 minutes. I felt we had a double homicide and definitely a first degree murder case. And that's the way Dan White was charged. And the district attorney felt the same way. Uh, unfortunately, the jury felt differently. They found them guilty of two counts of voluntary manslaughter. It led to the city uh, uprising uh, called White Night Riots. Uh, police cars were lit on fire. City Hall doors were broken. Uh, the gays, uh, and justifiably so, were so outraged that they, they, they wanted revenge. And it ended up being everybody's worst nightmare that night. Uh, Dan went away. He spent uh, short of six years in prison, and then he was released. And the media was on it 100%. Everybody was trying to find out where was Dan White paroled. Well, I got a phone call one night. He didn't identify himself as Dan White. He used the name of another officer, one that was a mutual friend, but I knew it was Dan White. And he said, Frank, I need to talk to you. I said, well, I'd love to talk to you. He says, can you come down to Los Angeles? The year was 1984. It was during the uh, LA Olympics. I flew down there. He had told me his family had bought tickets uh, to events. It was track and field and some boxing matches. So I met Dan White in Los Angeles. He was wearing a baseball cap, sunglasses. He was in physical top shape. He was walking everywhere. So the first day was just small talk. I ended up sleeping in the bed that night. He slept on the sofa. The next day we were at some uh, track and field events and we were out in the courtyard uh, at lunchtime and we both went over to one of the shacks and we ordered hot dogs, uh, Diet Coke and potato chips. And we sat down and I looked at him. I said, Dan, I gotta know, what did I miss? And what, what I heard next uh, was worse than the first day. It was, it was unbelievable. He looked at me and he says, I really lost it, Frank, didn't I? I said, Jesus, Dan, to say the least. He says, you remember I had 21 bullets? He had five in the gun and then 16 in his pocket. I said, yeah. He says, I intended to kill four people that day. Oh, Jesus. I always thought it was first degree murder. Now he's telling me he wanted to kill four people. I said, who are your other victims going to be? He mentions Willie Brown. Willie Brown ended up being uh, the mayor of San Francisco just a few years back. Uh, Willie Brown was a, a very strong, a progressive liberal uh, figure in the state of California. He felt that Willie Brown was pulling Moscone strings. And he mentions a, a woman who I still to this day, I've never met her. Her name is Carol Ruth Silver. He said, I was gonna kill her. She was the biggest snake of the bunch. And, you know, I think I was so overwhelmed that day. I didn't follow up with any further questions because I knew I thought I had covered every base that day. 
And basically I did based on the facts that we knew, but now I was being told that it was gonna be four victims, not just two. Uh, sometime later, uh, Dan White returns to the city against Mayor Feinstein's wishes. I get a phone call, uh, actually it was a call to my radio car to respond out to Onondaga Street. I knew that area well. My uh, wife was raised in that neighborhood. It's out in the Ingleside district. And when I pulled up, I knew right away where I was. I was at Dan White's house. He had committed suicide, surprised nobody. I walked into the garage and there in the ground, I, there was my friend, the murderer that killed Moscone Milk had planned to kill Willie Brown and Carol Ruth Silver. He had taped up his car, ran a hose into the back window, had pictures of his children and his wife. And what the jury spared him, the gas chamber, he gave to himself. He was now laying on the cold floor in that garage with a Catholic priest kneeling over him, giving him last rites and two nuns in their full outfits, praying on their rosary beads as the priest was administering the last rites. I, I walked upstairs and I saw his brother, Tommy. Tommy was hysterical. He had found Dan's body and Tommy's pounding the wall, crying hysterically, Frank, why did Dan do this to me? And he was wiping away, his nose was running, tears coming down his face. I hugged him and I said, Tommy, Dan, something happened to him. He's not in his right mind. I said, he must have felt you were the right person to find him. Dan was the leader of the family after your father died. He felt you were now the one to take his place. You talk about your worst nightmare. This was just beyond something else. This, this was a good friend and he kills the mayor, kills Harvey Milk. Out, so out of character, so out of character. He had gone to parochial schools. He lived by the 10 commandments. He had gone to church. He had, had his children baptized. And here he is killing the mayor and shooting the supervisor and wanting to kill two others. I, I, to this day, I cannot make sense out of what I witnessed and lived through. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is such a, such a sad story there regarding, uh, you know, somebody who was like family to you. I mean, I mean, that just had to be heartbreaking. How do you get over that, Frank? You don't. Obviously, me talking to you tonight, you can hear in my heart. I still haven't figured it out. I don't understand it. It's like a B-grade movie, and I'm watching it in real life, real time. And I lived it, and I still haven't accepted it. It's, uh, I knew the whole cast of characters. And yeah, Harvey and George conspired to not give Dan back his job. But I, like I said to Dan, I could understand it if you punched them both in the nose. But to take a gun and kill two people? Who does that? You had to be insane. And I guess that's what the jury must have thought because their verdict was definitely not real 
I, I can remember like yesterday, the jury's coming in, the press is crowding all over the courtroom. Duffy's there and the man from the San Francisco Examiner, they were the only two allowed inside the bulletproof glass. And uh, the man from the Examiner, Jim Woods, they're there waiting to break the news. Everybody knew it was gonna be two first degree murder convictions. Joe Freitas was a district attorney at the time. He comes in and he sits down be next to the prosecutor, Tom Norman, and myself. He doesn't say anything to Tom Norman. He looks at me. He says, Frank, what do you think it's going to be? And I said, I'm going to be honest with you, Joe. I think the first one, they're going to say voluntary manslaughter, figuring Dan White in the heat of passion lashed out at George Moscone. But once Dan White unloaded his gun, walked across, and it's a long walk, and reloaded his gun and went in and shot and killed Harvey Milk, that's premeditation. That's first degree. So I was saying voluntary first degree. Tom Norman, the lead prosecutor, he looked at me. He was very upset. He said, Joe, Joe was his boss. Frank's got it all wrong. It's going to be two first degree murder convictions. Well, we were the so-called experts and we were both wrong. The jury came in and found voluntary manslaughter against George Moscone, voluntary manslaughter against Harvey Milk. Well, the whole courtroom erupted, media people flying everywhere to report their story. My buddy Duffy Jennings writing a headline story. And that night, the White Knight riots, and you couldn't blame the people of San Francisco. Justice was not served. I think Dan White knew that. His upbringing, his moral background, he knew he should have received murder in the first degree, two counts, and been sentenced either to death or to life in prison. It didn't happen. And there was a tragedy. Unbelievable. Duffy, when you're uh, listening to this and writing the book, the stories of Frank, I mean, you can easily capture the emotion that's in his in his voice. I mean, this is a. I mean, it's not just about the big cases. This is about you know stuff that really hits home as well. It was an interesting experience for me to write Frank's first person memoir because I had to really understand uh, his thinking, his voice, his uh, his motivation. Uh, and and really get into his head in order to sit down and write uh, in in his voice and uh, I you know we're both pretty happy the way it the way it turned out it wasn't something I had done as a reporter before but I had lived through the same period I had been the city hall reporter for the Chronicle for the first two years of the Moscone administration I knew all these men. Uh, uh, very well, as well as anybody uh, from being with them day in and day out for uh, for a few years. And being a reporter, you understand the city and its people. I was just as wrong as as Frank and Tommy Norman were about those verdicts. Everybody expected something different. Uh, and the gasping in the courtroom when it when the jury when the verdicts were read was was unlike anything I'd ever heard or seen before. And uh, 
And that's just what you live with in his business or mine. There, there are these shocking developments uh, on any given day. You don't know when to expect them, but it's sort of what makes the job, uh, you know, very different from a guy who goes to work in a suit every day and does the same thing, uh, you know, day in and day out all the time. Uh, so, so yeah, I, he and I are both native San Franciscans. We both grew up. This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com slash span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. We grew up in different neighborhoods. We both grew up with a love of baseball. We had a lot of things in common that we didn't even realize until we started doing this book. And I think that helped me to kind of understand where Frank comes from, what his background was, uh, why he wanted to do this book, and uh, and how good it was going to be just listening to him tell his stories. Yeah, and we're just getting a sample of this. This is this is just a, a taste and a sample. Let's get to some audience questions. We got about five minutes here uh, for you here, and, and let's start off with Pam here, who is asking: Have you ever learned anything about uh, the Idaho killings, whether they were serial killers, stalker, or just random? Have you ever investigated anything to do with that, Frank? No, I, I've been following the Idaho killings. Uh, you know, I. I, I don't know any more than your man asking the questions. Uh, I would suspect, and again, this is pure speculation, that one of those young ladies either was stalked and it was a stalking killing or it was a jilted lover or somebody that she never gave attention to that was in love with her. This was a brutal attack, and I would suspect the other people that were killed were just collateral damages. Either they awoke from their sleep and they had to be killed, you know, to prevent the killer from getting away. Uh, but I have no knowledge at all. This is all pure speculation. All right. Let's move to another question. Bigfoot Michigan Rob, obviously from Michigan. Is it true that on the Night Stalker case, that the LAPD purposely or inadvertently held information from San Francisco police to help with the case? No, it definitely wasn't the LAPD. And uh, your, your questioner uh, is asking a very good question. Uh, it was the LA Sheriff's Department. Uh, they were so interested in solving this case by themselves, uh, they really were not sharing information. Uh, the LAPD, the two detectives in charge, were close personal friends, uh, Leroy Orozco and Paul Tippin, and they shared everything. Uh, when that case broke, 
uh, whenever the media or anybody would talk about San Francisco, the two L.A. sheriff detectives would say, oh, their mayor, Diane Feinstein, uh, she almost blew our case. San Francisco almost blew our case. Never once said San Francisco broke our case. And, and that really hurt. Uh, but it definitely was not the LAPD. It was the L.A. Sheriff's Office. All right, let's go to the Doug Shelby in Missouri, who is asking, Frank, does solving big cases make up for the unsolved so it doesn't drive you crazy? Uh, an excellent question. Every case is important. You want to solve them all. Uh, some are, are a lot easier than others. Uh, and, and yes, the uh, solving a big case, the way I always looked at it, I wanted to be a major league ball player. My skills were marginal, never happened. But when I got into the homicide detail, I looked at all the guys I was working with, and I was in the major leagues. These were the cream of the crop, the top detectives in the police department, and I was one of them. And I felt the only way you get any kind of credit is to solve a big case, to solve your case. That's like hitting a home run. And every day you get another case. You don't solve it. You don't hit that home run. So over a period of years, you build up a reputation, just like a major league ball player. You don't judge them on one case or one home run. It's a career. And that's what Duffy and I were trying to show, was a career of success. Uh, 20 years in homicide, working over 300 cases. Wow. I had to solve close to 280 of those 300 cases. Some cases, virtually impossible to solve. Well, that, that leaves another know. topic for another night on why they are unsolvable. Uh, gentlemen, we have less than one minute to go here, so I apologize to our listeners that couldn't get the questions in. But I would love to have you guys back to talk more, not only about the book, but crime in general. This has just been a great night of radio. Thank you so much, Frank Felzon and Duffy Jennings, for coming on Spaced Out Radio and breaking it all down. Uh, David, if I could just say one last thing to your audience. If they would like an autographed copy, it's Frank Falzon, F-A-L-Z like in zebra, O-N.com. Autographed copy, FrankFalzon.com. And DuffyJennings.com as well. Absolutely. Yes, they're also available there. Thanks, Dave, for having us. It's been, a, been super, and we're happy to come back anytime. Oh, this is fantastic radio, gentlemen. Thank you so much. The book is You've called been awesome, San Francisco Homicide Inspector 5 Henry 7, My Inside Story of the Night Stalker, City Hall Murders, Zebra Killings, Chinatown Gang Wars, and a City Under Siege. We say goodbye to hour number two. Swamp Dweller kicks off hour number three next on Spaced Out Radio. That was fantastic, guys. Fantastic. Great. Glad you had a good time. Oh, I hope you guys did, too. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's great. It's great, to, as I said, to have the time to go into some of these stories and we just barely scratched the surface on 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 a few of the big ones but yeah. um 
think that's what people want to hear. And, and so, um, so we're very pleased about that. I think Frank uh, froze up here just in time. So uh, <laughs> it's past uh, his bedtime. Yeah. I'm going to let you go, Duffy. We'll talk soon. All right. And uh, thank Great. you so much. I, I look forward to getting the book too. Send the address and we'll, we'll pop it in the mail. Thank you, my friend. Right, Take thanks. care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gosh, were they good. They were fantastic. I will be right back. I got to hit the little boy's room. We'll be right back, guys.
That was fantastic. Just fantastic. Oh my God, sakes. Every time. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. We are about a minute away. Hope you all enjoyed that. That was a fantastic show. Fantastic show. Wow. Yeah, I'm ready for some Swampy 2. Gong Show, how you doing, buddy? All right. I want to say a big thank you tonight to both Steve and Maggie for the super chats. Very much appreciate the love and support. It's a great way to support what we do on this show. And thank you to everyone who shopped at spacedoutradio.com recently. Here we go with the third hour, everyone. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Third and final hour of Spaced Out Radio is now underway. Thank you so much. For taking the time to join us, we very much appreciate it. Want to remind you that uh, we really do appreciate you coming on in, especially around the Christmas season, and tuning us in, making us bigger and better each and every night. Thank you. Hi to everyone listening in on our terrestrial affiliates around North America and digitally on Odyssey Radio, TalkStream Live, and KPNL. All of our archives are free. Join us at youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. The Desert Clam has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Navifana. Navifana is your password. Use it wisely, Space Travelers, as the Clam sets the password each and every night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read the newswire, check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. It is time once again where we head to the swamp. Our resident swamp dweller takes us on another spooky journey. Hi, Spaced Out Radio listeners. This is Swamp Dweller. It's time for your nightly dose of spookiness on the show. If you have an interesting encounter or a spooky story that you would like to share, be sure to submit them in at swampdweller.net. You can also find our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash swampdwellerreads. Now, let's chill out, relax, and together, let's enter the swamp. One day last year, I was hunting in a ground blind on the outskirts of a field about 20 yards from a stream. On the other side of this creek was a massive uphill slope covered in trees. We call this area the thicket. The property is roughly two hours northeast of Atlanta, Georgia. This particular day wasn't very active. I had been in the blinds for about an hour and a half and hadn't seen a single deer. 
I heard something strolling down the hill behind me. It was about 4 or 5 o'clock and stopped right about when it got to the creek. It sounds heavy as it walks, so I'm expecting to see a massive deer, as there aren't any good-sized animals in this area besides them. There have been bears sighted on the minor road that the property lies on, but that's few and far between, and it's always a big local story when it happens, and I've been living here for about 30 plus years and I've never seen one personally. It's quiet for a minute. Then suddenly I feel something hit the top of the blind, maybe about the size of an acorn or a small rock. I'm under a small tree so I don't think too much of it, but after about 30 seconds it happens again. The nature of this occurrence leads me to believe that something didn't fall on the blind. Something was thrown at it. Now this is about the time I start asking myself questions. I didn't have time to ask many before it stepped into the creek. I can hear water splashing around, confirming that this was big and heavy. Whatever it was, it was massive. I finally work up the courage to stand up in the blind and look out the back window and flap to see if I can see my quote-unquote assailant. But there's nothing there. Nothing at all. The noises have stopped. I sit down, wondering what the hell is happening behind me, and starting to get a bit unnerved. That's when I hear something grunting. It's making these concerning vocalizations, and once again, it starts stomping around in the creek, splashing every which way. When I hunt, I usually carry a buck knife and a 9mm handgun, and my primary rifle is a Browning X-Bolt, chambered in a 300 short magnum. The short version is, it's a massive, little powerful bullet for anyone who doesn't understand what that means. This thing, it'll blow you up real quick. Most deer I kill with it never run away and bleed out somewhere. They usually are dead before they even hit the ground from blunt force trauma. In short, it's just a hair short of being considered overkill. I only tell you this to highlight that I wasn't precisely defenseless at the time. It was quite the opposite. After about two to three more minutes of hearing this thing cause an uproar in the creek, I decided my only way out was a confrontation. I stand up, unzip my blind, and take the safety off my shoulder cannon as I step into the open field. But again, it was just me. There was nothing out here, just an empty field, nothing in the creek, nothing in my area, nothing in the thicket, and no sounds of any kind. Absolutely nothing. I've had about all I can stand at this point, and I don't care how many guns I have. Nothing that big and that heavy can just vanish into thin air. It was time to get back to the RTV and get the heck out of there, and now. But I couldn't even take one step in the direction of my ride when I heard it again. Sauntering back up the hill, deep into the thicket, I swear this time I can hear it breathing too. I haven't hunted in that area again, and I don't think I ever plan to. Just remember, we're not the only things out there in the woods, and you never know what you might run into. I don't think this was a Sasquatch, I don't think it was a skimwalker, but I don't know at all what it was. Oh my. What could it be? Those are the monsters we try and track down. On a nightly basis with our man we call the Swamp Dweller around here. Swamp Dweller joins us every Monday through Friday night kicking off hour number three. If you want more, he's got thousands of stories for free just like that. Head on over to his YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash swamp dweller reads and you can check them on all out for yourself speaking of monsters it is time once again to bring in the monster man himself super duke from world bigfoot radio is back for the cryptid report
Here's the man, the myth, and the monster legend himself, Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio. My man, it's always good to see you. Looking hey, good buddy. <laughs> You're looking good over there, too. I can see you right across the partition in our studio here. I appreciate that. I appreciate high five that. me. <laughs> high five, high five. Yeah, buddy, right there, right there. There we go. There we go. Super Duke, we're getting close to Christmas here, and I'm sure that you have a plethora of cryptid treats for us heading into tonight's long version of the cryptid report. Oh, yeah, there's a whole myriad of monstrous mayhem to follow here. And, uh, you know, first of all, I want to lighten the mood a little bit because that was, that was really grim, although it was great programming. That was uh, some you. scary, sad stuff. And so we're just going to talk about buffalo and Bigfoot and cannibal monsters. Oh, yeah, uh, nothing, nothing like mood. it. Nothing like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not crazy people shooting people, but other things happening to them. So um, I don't know if I... If, if I should go ahead and tell you guys my second encounter tonight, since we have the log form, or if I should go into some of the other stories that I got, it's kind of up to you guys. You just run with it, man. This is your segment. Our audience loves it. They love it when you're uh, yapping on in with us, man. So take it wherever you want. Well, let's do my second encounter. Then we got enough time to cover that before the bottom of the hour. And that was, um, if you guys remember, I told you my first encounter when I was out sledding with a, I don't know what that thing is still <clears throat> it was very irritating since I was supposed to know all the sub varieties and everything. And, oh yeah, it's a description is this, it's this kind of monster. Still don't know what this thing is. Very irritating. Reality likes to laugh at you that way. Very true. Keeps keeps you from getting too egotistical when you start thinking you're knowing everything. I still don't know what the hell the first thing I saw was. So anyway, five years later, now I'm 15 years old. And it's early spring. And my little brother, who's nine years younger than me, is out playing in the sandbox. And it's warm, so we've got the windows open. And my mom's doing dishes we start hearing this weird noise coming from the woods. Neither one of us recognizes it. And my mom grew up in northern Wisconsin, so she... This episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com span. That's MeUndies.com slash S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. That's what all the old normal regular animals around there sound like. And we're just over in Minnesota, not very far away. So pretty much all the same animals. She does not recognize this call. Dad isn't around. He's at work. And I can't remember where my other brother was, but he wasn't around at the time. And uh, I said, uh, Mom, what is that weird noise? And she goes, I don't know. That might be a Wolverine or something. 
go get your little brother and bring him in the house. Okay, good thinking, Mom. (laughs) So I immediately obliged, went outside, got Paul, brought him back in the house again. And the same noise repeated about two minutes later. But this time was in a little bit different side of the yard. And at this time of the year, it was all the bright green spring foliage, and it was already nice and thick. So you couldn't see like three quarters of the yard isn't mowed or anything and had all these little saplings growing up in it. The only part that was mowed went down, you know, maybe 60, 70 feet from the house and the remainder you know, <laughs> football field length out to the road uh, was unimproved, basically woods. So all around the house, there are plenty of places that something could hide. Whatever this was must have been fairly close because it was really loud. And it kept moving around about every two minutes. It would make the same weird sound. Now, at the time, I had no idea what this was. And it wasn't until years later that I heard the Sierra sounds that Ron Moorhead uh, recorded, which was uh, actually a few years before this happened, but I hadn't heard it at that point. It was the same exact sound. And so now I know what it was. It was a Bigfoot, and they were making the angry sound, which if you ever heard the Sierra sound, sounds a lot like... And about every two minutes, this sound would repeat, and it would be in a different place around the yard every time. So we had no idea what this was, but it was really scary. And this is like mid-afternoon. This ain't at night or anything. I'm actually going outside looking every time I hear the noise, trying to see what's making it. No success. So about two weeks later, my parents are having a big get-together for, you know, Lions Club or something. I can't remember what the event was exactly. But, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we don't usually have any kind of gatherings there, much less a huge one. And like I said, we got about 100 yards of driveway between the house and where the main road is. And there's so many people there. They have their vehicles parked on both sides of the driveway all the way down to the main road. And on both sides of the main roads, there's a ton of people there. So it's noisy. There's lots of activity going on. And being the 15-year-old now, I get tasked to do uh, chores for dad. And dad's chore is go out and get 12-pack of beer out of the back of the third car on the right-hand side. The door's open. We're running low on beer. Bring in more beer. Okay. So there's tons of people in the house making tons of noise and I go walking out, and it's night, and the porch light only penetrates light about back to the middle of the second car down the driveway. Beyond that, it's all impenetrable darkness, and you can't see anything. So I go walking down the three steps. There's about 15 feet of concrete slab, and then the slab ends where there's a gravel driveway. Turn to my right, start going down the driveway, and I see some goofus coming up the driveway, that's wearing sunglasses. It's the old 1970s style sunglasses with the really big lenses and they're reflective green looking. And as I'm walking toward him, I'm about to give this idiot a hard time. Clearly he's drunk. He's walking around in the pitch black with sunglasses on. And I get down to about the end of the first car. And then I start realizing that those aren't sunglasses. The lenses are too far apart. And he's not coming toward me. He's just standing there. It's he's still in total darkness, but I'm getting this reflection off the light on the porch where I can see these sunglasses, which I'm now starting to realize are not sunglasses. And so I take a couple more steps forward, now slower, trying to acquire what it is that I'm looking at. 
And when I get far enough down beyond the reach of where the porch light goes, which again is about one and a half cars back, and now I'm about in the middle of the, of the second car, I can see there's an outline around this thing. And it ain't human shaped. Now I don't know what to do. I'm only, this thing is like standing about where the middle of the next car is. So it's very close. And the first thing I think is it's a huge bear because it's way too big to be a human. And it is the right size to be a gigantic bear. But the next thing that goes through my mind is it's at eye level with me. Unless the bear is standing on its hind legs, it shouldn't be at eye level with me. Remember, this is northern Minnesota. There aren't grizzlies there. Right. So then I start realizing I can see the outline of this thing, and the outline that I'm seeing doesn't look like a bear. First of all, it has shoulders, really wide ones. And as I take that next step forward and pause next to the car, put my hand on it, I can see that it's got its front arms down on the ground resting on its knuckles and it's squatting on its haunches and it's still six feet tall looking me in the eye so far it hasn't moved or made a sound so now i start playing with the doorknob because i'm supposed to go get this beer (laughs) and i'm trying to open the handle on the door not very hard and i'm thinking to myself how can if i turn around and run it's going to catch me in a second so that's not an option I have to pretend that I don't see it and just go about my business and fiddle around to the car to find the beer. And it's still standing there watching me. I'm watching it out of the corner of my eye, whatever this giant thing is. And I'm fiddling around to the door and I'm not trying to open the door. I am not going to grab the uh, 12 pack of beer and carry that with me too yet. So I fiddle around like I'm trying to open it, but I don't. And then I think to myself, if I get something between me and whatever this thing is, that will increase the length of my life by two or three seconds at least. So it's you worth hope. trying. You hope. So, yeah, that's my hope. So there's just about enough room in between the bumper at the back of this car and the bumper at the front of the next car for me to squeeze my legs through. And that's about it. They're packed and they're really tight. So I decided I'm going to try and squeeze through there and pretend like I'm fiddling around with the trunk to open the trunk. And that was the most terrifying part because for a second I had to turn my back completely on this thing. And I was only about eight feet away. And then I quickly bolted to the other side of the car, ducked down and ran hunched over as fast as I could up to the front of the line of cars, bolted up onto the porch, whipped open the door and yelled to my dad. And then at that moment I thought, I don't even know what this thing is. What am I going to say? Well, we already knew there was a giant bear it was in the area. My dad had taken a shot at him the previous year. This thing was huge. Left a seven and a half inch uh, front footprint track in the driveway. And we had a, our nickname for him was, uh, I'm not sure I can say it on the air, but Big B Word. And uh, <clears throat> so I yelled that. And my dad immediately got the idea, uh-oh, it's right outside. And he ran for the 12 gauge. And I grabbed the 4570 out of the gun cap. And we both ran outside. And of course, whatever it was, was gone at that point never to be seen again of course not but that that was my second really freaking scary encounter <laughs> like this thing was massive it was squatting down on its knuckles and haunches and it was still six feet tall and it was probably four and a half five feet wide minimum sounds like a sasquatch you're dealing with some sasquatch stuff there man 
I'll never be able to understand why, though. I mean, there's this huge gathering of people going on there. If there's any time to come sneaking around in the yard, that's not the good time to do it. Yeah, but they don't. And why was it just sitting there in the dark and letting me walk into it? That's because they only care about their own curiosity. That's it. It's the only way it can be Yeah, explained. but when you're curious, you don't sit in the middle of the driveway right out in the open. You sit on one of the sides of the cars in the woods where no one can see you. <laughs> well, maybe it was a bet. Maybe it was a juvenile who had a bet with his buddies on who could sit in the driveway the longest. Uh, juvenile, nine foot, nope. <laughs> never know. I've been cogitating on this one for years. I'll never be able to figure out what the hell happened there. That was just, but again, there was no more activity around the yard after that. That was like the only time that we had any, any of them around the house. And the whole time I was growing up there until uh, 1980 or 81 when I uh, left. And, you know, as far as I know, there was no other activity. I never heard anything from my folks about it or anything. And they didn't live there that much longer. They sold the house, moved down to Florida. But, uh, yeah, you know, other than my first encounter and that second one there, and then a few peculiar things that happened when I was in the woods, when I was older and would go in the woods and go hunting again and be like dripping guns like Rambo, guns falling out of guns. I had so many guns with me before I'd go in the woods. And, uh, yeah, I, there was a couple of weird things that happened there. We had an ATV that we had this big, used to be a logging road behind our house, but you know, that had been a hundred years earlier. So it kind of got grown up a bit during the winter was used as a snowmobile trail. So during the summer we started running our ATVs down, which of course kept all the brush down and also kind of made it muddy in places and stuff. And one of my favorite places you go around this curve and then it would drop down sharply to the bottom of the valley there was a little creek that went through it you'd splash through that and then it would go up at an angle across the hillside on the other side of the valley and so go hit the puddle splash the water and then gun it up the hill again and i never connected the dots until much later but i I remember many times where i'd be doing that and they could probably hear me coming a long ways away and, you know, those ATVs moved pretty fast, even in the late 70s. The th- little three-wheelers yes. we had, they would rip pretty good. And they were extremely dangerous. You could tip them really easy, too. We found that out a lot. Of course, we figured out how to do wheelies right away. So anyway, uh, after I'd splashed through that little stream, I'd just gun it and try and go up that hill as fast as I could. And I remember two or three times I'd get to the top and I'd stop and turn around and look back at the ATV to see if I had a flat tire. Because I kept hearing this flop, 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 flop sound behind me, like big flat feet flopping down on the trail behind me as I'm going up this hill, you know, like 35, 40 miles an hour. And I've always kind of wondered about that. What was that all about? Where was that sound coming from? Because there was never anything wrong with the ATV, and that was the only place it would happen. Mm. And then the other time is I was out bird hunting, and I had uh, I was in a clearing, so and it's nice and uh, bright daytime. So I sat down with my back to a big pine tree, mm-hmm. and I had a sandwich with me, so I pulled out the sandwich and started eating it. Hold on. What kind of sandwich? What kind of sandwich? It, it was bologna and cheese. Okay, very nice. Very <laughs> yeah, nice. it's not anything Bigfoot would want. So anyway, I'm, I'm sitting there with my back to the tree, and I'm eating the sandwich, and something mm-hmm. hits me. Mm. There's, I start realizing there's things bouncing off me every so often. So I'm looking up above me going, are there pine cones falling out of the tree or something? And finally, I see one bounce off my knee, 
and it's an acorn. And I'm like, well, I'm sitting under a pine tree. How are there acorns falling on me? Is there an angry squirrel up here or something? And I'm looking up, and there's no animal sounds or anything. It's really quiet and still, actually. And then it registers on me that this little clearing I'm sitting in, there's nothing but pine trees all the way around it. And then, <laughs> and then I get hit by another acorn. No, geez. And I'm like, okay, uh, something's throwing acorns at me. I'm going to get out of this area now. And again, at that time, I had no idea that Bigfoot would do anything like that. Well, they had no I look idea back on it, you no, were. Well, pretty like, obvious who was doing that. You're like, hey, this is Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio. What are you doing throwing them acorns at me, you dirty son of a gun? <laughs> Knock it off, you bastages. Well, actually, that was a good sign because they're just being playful and they're trying to get your attention. They're just messing with you. If they're hurling rocks the size of a grapefruit at you, that's a little bit different. Oh, yeah. Know? But they're probably, you know, that was like an intelligent test. Hey, let's see how long it takes for the idiot to figure out that those are acorns and he's sitting in a grove of pine trees. <laughs> I failed. <laughs> yeah, I would have too. It wasn't until years later that I went, oh, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> now I know what was doing that. <laughs> I figured that was way too long range of toss for a squirrel anyway. Why would they waste <clears throat> their food throwing it at me? I want to ask you about throwing objects when we get back. Remind me of that because we are going to go to break here at the uh, bottom of the hour. Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio, the extended version of the Cryptid Report tonight. Find them at YouTube, BitChute, Rumble, and all over the world. We continue with the Cryptid Report. Super Duke Sullivan, the man, the myth, and the monster legend, all rolled into one, coming up right after the break. You know when your eyes get tired and that tired liquid rolls into your eyes and it starts to burn? A little bit. Yes. <laughs> I was so, like, it's like it poured super glue in your eye somehow. And you're like, I'm a pirate now. Where's my right? eye patch? <laughs> it's like, gosh. And then you try and so wipe gonna... it away gently and it burns even more. <laughs> it makes it worse. And then you can't see it all. <laughs> all right. I'm going to take a quick sig break here. Yeah, you go. In case you guys are wondering, I rate that as like one of the scariest encounters I've ever had by far. Right. Right. Even though the first one was worse, that one wasn't really all that great either. <laughs> and he's like, hey, Super Duke, get off my lawn. Get out of my acorn trees. Dang, burn it. It's our man, Super Duke, right there. World Bigfoot Radio. Gotta love him. Gotta love him. Mm-hmm. Good old Super Duke. Super Duke. Mm-hmm. That's the way it goes, people. It's the way it goes. I hope all of you have had a good night tonight. So I now have a hair near my eye. It's bugging me.
Super Duke. Super Duke. <coughs> Excuse me. Here comes Super Duke. Get off my lawn, Super Duke. Mr. Underhill, welcome from Twitch. Why? Dee Swiger doing her best Nancy Kerrigan right there. Why? 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 How dare you? How dare you? Sometimes I can be funny, D. Swagger. Sometimes I can be funny. Gesundheit. Anybody want to come on over here and uh, heat up my feet? My tootsies are a little cold. <clears throat> Super Duke, Super Duke. I'm going to make a new intro for Super Duke. Cool. Not that I don't like the old one or anything, but cool, Dave. Yeah, it's going to be me singing. Super Duke, Super (laughs) Duke. Chasing monsters at Super Duke. Catching them. What does he do that day? It's time to turn around and run away. <laughs> Look out. Here comes the Super Duke. <laughs> what does he say when he runs by? Run like hell or you're gonna die. <laughs> All I know is, man, I'm just happy you get my sense of humor. <laughs> I have the same warped sense of humor, too. <clears throat> That's why I like you so much, Dave. Ah, I appreciate warped, that. Warped sense of humor, men must uh, work together. Got to stick together. That's right. We got 20 seconds here, buddy. 20 right. seconds. 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. 10 seconds. Thank you to Maggie and to Steve for the awesome super chats. Very much appreciate it. And here we go, everyone, in like three seconds. Round of third, we're heading for home tonight on Spaced Out Radio. Good to have you with us. My name is Dave Scott. 
very much appreciate earning your listening ears. I want to remind you that if you've missed portions of this show or others, check out our free archives by going to youtube.com forward slash spaced out radio. Do old Davey the favor, hit that subscribe button. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. We have a plethora, plethora, a plethora of features for you. Rock out to Bumblefoot, read Shirky Poo's Newswire. Check out our swag as well. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, Instagram at Spaced Out Radio Show, and on TikTok at Spaced Out Radio. Here we go, continuing the cryptid report. Right before the break, Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio, you were talking about getting acorns thrown at you by something mystic and mysterious. My question to you, my friend, is this. Hello, Duke, my old friend. Are you getting acorns thrown at you again? You know, but seriously, I'm a firm believer that Sasquatch or whatever is throwing the objects can be very accurate. Very, very accurate. What is with the throwing of rocks this episode is sponsored by Me Undies. Me Undies has you and your butt covered this holiday season with the most perfect gifts imaginable. From undies and bralettes to loungewear and sleepwear, Me Undies has what you need for everyone on your list. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. To get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order, visit MeUndies.com span. That's MeUndies.com S-P-A-N. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Or acorns in this case that you had. What's the purpose you think of doing that? I think they're just trying to get your attention. I mean, if they want you to get out of the area, they'll be a lot more obvious than that. You know, they'll start hitting you with big rocks. They'll throw sticks, logs, shake trees, uh, roar, bluff charge. Away, it'll be obvious they want you to go away. If they're just throwing little things at you, they're trying to get your attention. And we had that happen at one of our campouts where we were all sitting around telling stories around the campfire. There's like six or seven of us there, and two of the vehicles were parked up on the road, two big trucks. And the guys that owned the vehicles abruptly stopped everyone, and, and one of them says, to The other one, are you hearing that? And he goes, Yeah. And I'm on the other side of the fire, crackle, crackle, crackle. I can't hear it from the fire. What are you guys hearing? There's something throwing rocks at our trucks. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we should change the subject. So we tried talking about something different. And about three or four minutes later, they both kind of smiled and they went, well, whatever it was, it stopped now. <laughs> Good thing we changed the subject, I guess. You know, not that that was any uh, absolute decider on what happened, but there was an example of, you know, <clears throat> something was throwing rocks at the trucks, not big ones just little ones that would go tink and make a noise when they'd hit it. And it's a good 40 feet across that open stretch of road to even where there is a tree line. So it's not squirrels or anything doing it. 
what do you think though? It, you you say you you think they're doing it in the in the name of fun, but could it be to maybe try and get you out of that area? Well, if they want you out of the area, they'll be you know you'll get the aggressive ones where they start throwing good sized rocks at you that may not hit you, but they're big enough that if they do hit you, they're going to hurt. And sometimes they do hit you. That happened to Robert Kreider where they had one of them sort of trapped in this brushy area and guys on both sides of it, and they were trying to get as close as they could. And it's at night, and this juvie finally just got sick of it and winged a rock at him, and it bounced off the uh, the one guy's side and then hit Rob right in the leg, at which point Rob uh, stood up and <laughs> gave him a lecture. It's on video. Hey, knock it off. You could have hurt one of us. We're not throwing rocks at you. Don't throw them at us. <laughs> He's still got the rock that he got hit with too. It's on radio, but that was a, that was a situation there where they were trying to make it clear: Hey, you're getting too close. Get the hell out of here! So he literally bounced a rock off of one guy and then hit hit Rob with it. Oh, the jerks, the jerks! I've only ever had one rock thrown at me, and that was with my, my buddy Mike and I, and it landed. We heard it ting right in front of my truck. The only the sound that a rock on rock can hit. We never got anything else on that. Uh, you know, do they normally just throw one or is it usually many? Usually many. It, it's very rare. Unless you're walking through the woods and, you know, you're not sitting in one place, then maybe they'll try and bing you with one or something like that. But if there's, you know, if they really want to get your attention, they'll try that again too. It's usually if you're just sitting in one place and they just want to get your attention and let you know they're there or something. Or, you know, they th- they think it's interesting to judge your reaction. A lot of the stuff they're doing, they're just judging our reaction or just watching us to see what we're doing to the point where they decide they want to judge our reaction on something. Um, and the more they get the reaction that they want, the more they're going to have, you know, any kind of trust that is going to make them think that they can get near you and not get hurt because, you know, Number one concern, don't get hurt by humans. They're crazy. They shoot everything. Very true. We're, we're, we're very, very good at that. That's for sure. Yep. I've seen correlations in certain areas where they purport that their uh, local Sasquatch are more dangerous than in other parts of the country. And you always wonder why that is. Is it just this one population or so violent? Or is it the weather? It's too hot in this area. It's too cold in this area. Mm, no, the only correlation I've been able to see is just there's a lot of people with guns that shoot anything they don't recognize. And that seems to be what makes those ones in that area violent because you're shooting at them all the time. That would make me violent too. Oh, I think so. I, I, I could totally, totally see that. Totally see that. All right, you got another story for us tonight, my friend. I got several more stories. We'll see what we can get through here. Sure. This one is interesting because uh, it just I just got it the other day, and I saw it on someone else's channel, and I was just digging around earlier today trying to figure out where I saw it so I could give them due credit for it, but unfortunately not able to. If I can in the future, I'll let you know. But anyway, this is very cool because uh, it happened quite a few years ago in Yellowstone, and I'm doing the usual working on something, listening to story in the background thing. And as I'm listening to it, I'm like, they're describing this place in Yellowstone Park that I have been to. And you could tell by the description, it's either an identical place to where I was at, or it's the same place. 
but the description's identical. There's this one section of road that goes through there. It's near where the big falls are. There's an open field on the right-hand side as you're coming up the road, and the road gradually slopes upward, and it's got a guardrail on it. And then it dips down, and down below that, there's this big field that's all at the same level. And except for the section of road that goes by there, all of it's surrounded with woods. And it seems like the field goes way off into the distance to your left-hand side. And to the right-hand side, it sort of doesn't go back too much further, and there's woods there. Well, as we come pulling up, <clears throat> it's me and my crazy cousin, who's a year older than me, Steve, and we're hitchhiking around the, the west. This is 1980, summer 1980. And we were getting a ride through Yellowstone, because we're hitchhiking. And the guy that gave us a ride was a French photojournalist who was touring around America, taking snappy photos. One of the things he was doing just for humor is because every state in the U.S. has a town named Paris. He was making sure to go to every single one of them and get a picture of it. And sometimes it's, you know, like a three-horse town or something. The buildings are all falling down. It's been deserted. still says Paris, takes a picture of it. So now he's having the fun part of his trip where he can just get pictures of whatever he wants. He's going through Yellowstone, and we, we ran into another guy that was from New York that was doing the same thing, and they were out there basically just to take pictures. So we see these bison down in this valley below us as we're driving past, and most of the herd has already gone off to the left. They're up the valley. There's one lone bull down there where we were at. And uh, he goes, I want to get some pictures of this, okay? So we get out with him, and he's setting up his tripod and stuff, and he's way, you know, we're way far away from it. And my cousin goes, you want to get closer pictures? And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, I know how to get close to him without getting killed. And I'm looking at my cousin like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> how, how is this accomplished? Well, he is Mr. Wilderness, Woodcraft, and Indian lore. So he knows exactly how to do this. And we, and we did it. And sure enough, it worked. And what you do is you, get, you go walking all up to the buffalo, spread out a little bit. And when you get too close, he'll turn and face one of you, whoever's closest. And the guys on the other sides keep moving. If he turns and faces one of them, you stop. And what you try and do is get him to a triangular position before he even moves like that, which we did. We spread out enough, and we got into a triangular position around him, each guy on one of the points of the triangle. And then one guy would start moving toward him. And when that got his attention, he'd turn to that guy. He was going to charge him. That guy stops moving. Then one of the other two guys, just one of them, starts moving forward. And he'll do the same thing. He'll turn and face you. And if you don't stop, he will charge and kill you. But you just stop, and he won't do anything. Right. It's all Mr. Defensive. So you keep doing this until you get as close as you want to and are maybe insane to get that close. And this guy was getting pictures, I don't know what, the drool coming out of its nose or something. Because <laughs> we were, like, really way, way closer than we needed to be. We were within 30 or 40 feet of it. And then <clears throat> in order to get away from it, you have to do the same thing in reverse. You have to repeat the process backwards. Every time one of you starts walking backwards, he'll turn and he's going to charge you. And then you got to stop and let one of the other guys do it. So this whole process takes us about 45 minutes from surrounding the buffalo, sneaking up on him, getting close-up pictures, and then getting to a safe distance where he's not reacting. We can walk away. Now we turn around and we look at the road. And every spare inch of it has people with vehicles parked bumper to bumper with cameras and video filming us in case we get killed. Oh, nice. Unfor unfortunately for them, we didn't get killed. No. So here it is, uh, and I just run across this story, and they're describing the same exact place. I mean, like, I'm visualizing it going, that it's the same exact place. This guy and his son are there. 
and there's a herd of buffalo going through the valley and again they're going up the valley to the left and they're watching them go through there and then the dad starts noticing that over to the right there's like a coyote or something standing there on the edge of the wood line and it looks like it's going to try and go through the valley with a herd of buffalo there which is like insane they're going to kill this thing and he can't understand what it's thinking and then sure enough it bolts out and it goes running into the middle of the valley it's going like half speed and by the time it gets out there into the middle one of the big bulls picks it out and goes i'm gonna squish this thing and starts going after it and right about then he hears this roar like he's never heard before in his life. He doesn't know what animal could make that kind of noise. And the trees and stuff start shaking over where this coyote was. And all of a sudden, this full-size alpha male Sasquatch busts out into the clearing, spots where the coyote is, and runs dead at it. And, of course, the buffalo have a completely different <laughs> reaction. They're like, what the hell's going on here? Apparently, they weren't getting out of the way. They just continued ambling on, and he was shoving them out of the way. One of the bulls came after him. He gave it a stiff arm like a, a football player would do and drove its head into the ground. He knocked it right to its knees and just kept going. And he chased the coyote into the wood line on the far side of the clearing. And that was the last they saw of him. <laughs> wow. And keep in mind, a buffalo is like 2,000 pounds. And this guy said he was shoving them out of the way like they were weightless. The one tried to charge him. He just smashed its head into the ground. Didn't even break stride. Just kept going. Damn, Buffalo, get off my lawn. Yeah, everything, everything else in North America has the common sense to stay the hell away from a buffalo. But apparently to Bigfoot, they're just like little toy poodles. You just shove them out of the way as you're going past trying to catch a damn coyote you're after. So, yeah, that really blew me away. That was a great report, and I was sitting there listening to the description going, I, I've been at this place. There can't be two places in the park that look identical to this. This is where we surrounded that buffalo. And this probably happened not that long afterwards. It sounded like the report was from, like, the mid-'80s, if I remember right. And uh, when we were there, it was 1980, summer 1980. So, <laughs> Wow. Wow, never had anything like that happen. That would be spectacular to actually see that. The only other report I've ever gotten of a witness seeing anything like that. Um, Maggie wants to know how much bigger than moose are buffalo. Buffalo are shorter than moose, but they're heavier. If you're six foot tall and you're looking at the side of a buffalo, the hump on its back is over your head. Yeah. Moose are taller than that, but they're not nearly as heavy. Um. <clears throat> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Reading comments. Ah! Hey, it works, man. It works, Super Duke. Hey, just a, a big question for you uh, regarding the, the idea. You've, you've spent enough time out in nature to really pick up signs. We, as amateurs going out in the forest, we don't really know what those signs are, Duke. What should we be looking for if we enter a Sasquatch territory. One of the ways to know if it is a Sasquatch territory is to keep an eye out for tree structures. They habitually snap branches and stuff when they walk through an area. So if you start seeing a lot of branches snapped off, like six feet or higher, might not be a bear. Pay attention. They'll also lean broken branches and stuff against tree trunks as trail markers. So that's another way to watch for them. Usually you don't see their tracks on like any 
like old logging trails or fire access roads and stuff like that, if humans use them very much, it's kind of rare that they'll walk on them because they know that if it gets much traffic, somebody will see their tracks and they're smarter than that. In, in places where there's uh, like you're at the bottom of a valley and there's a river in it, there's not much space other than the, the little trail that you're on or whatever. They probably got a parallel one within 40 or 50 feet on one side or the other of it. If they're in there, that's something good to look for. They don't really usually leave anything that looks like a trail. They'll use game trails and stuff like that. When they've got a, a trail that they have marked where they go through an area irregularly, they will literally make sure that they don't walk in a straight line so they don't leave a path there. And I found that before. You find four or five tracks, and then they'll sidestep. And they'll four or five tracks, and they'll sidestep. Four or five tracks, and they'll sidestep. They're going in the same general direction. They just don't go in a straight line. So as multiple ones of them are going through, they're not following a path like humans do where it gets all tromped down and obvious. You have to walk around and find all those tracks all over the damn place. It's very less obvious, and, you know, that's usually where there is no trail whatsoever. So the only way you're finding anything like that is if you, hey, there's a trail marker right there. It's pointing this way. Let's go through here. And then you start finding all these random big tracks all over the place. But the other thing I wanted to mention, since we got on the subject of moose there momentarily, there was somebody who wanted to get on my show, and I had all set up to record them, and their internet just went completely to crap because they're up in Alaska. And unfortunately, didn't complete the interview, but I did hear the whole story from him. And he was out moose hunting, and he was walking through this thicket trailing this big moose. And it was like right ahead of him, really fresh tracks. So he was getting a little bit, you know, concerned, had his gun already and everything. And he could see the woods was thinning out, and there was this little open field ahead of him with grass about three, four feet tall in it. And right as he was about to break out of the woods and see what was out there, he heard this sudden noise behind him, boop, 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 something running really fast coming up behind him. And all of a sudden, he got shoved off the path into the woods. And as he got up, he could hear whatever it was, ran past him and just smashed through the woods out into the field. So as he's getting up, it's already in the field. And it's a huge Sasquatch, 10 plus feet tall. And as it breaks cover into the field, the bull moose that was lying down in the grass hiding bolts up and tries to run away from it. And he said before the moose got to the, the far side of the field, it grabbed the, the moose's neck like a rodeo cowboy and snapped its neck and took it down on the ground. And at that point, he wanted nothing else to do with it, turn around and got the hell out of there as fast as he could. Oh, wow. Wow. Damn moose once again. Never trust him. Never trust him. You know? Well, point being here that there is there is no animal in North America that hasn't got the good common sense to be really scared of Bigfoot. If they got any self-preservation whatsoever, they're going to be like, oh, hell no, I don't want to go near that thing. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. We've got two minutes left, Super Duke. I'm going to let you finish it up. Tell me, quick paraphrase, your best Bigfoot story of 2022, whether it's yours or someone else's. Give us the highlights. Oh, God. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot. My favorite Bigfoot story of 2022 is I finally actually got to see one running. And I had never seen that up until this summer. I was out with Eric Awakening Man, and he was on a little bike ride down the road, and I was just sitting there in my, my lawn chair <laughs> staring down the edge of the wood line, and there's a big open field there on the far side of it. There's another 
hill and it's all forested, but right at the base of it, about 15, 20 feet in the wood line, there's an old abandoned logging road. So you look up from the base of the valley, 15, 20 feet, and you can see there's a logging road there. There's not that many trees in between. All of a sudden this thing, it's like tan brown, comes whipping down that trail, and it wasn't bouncing up and down. It was about nine feet tall, and it was going about 40 miles an hour. Now, I can't think of any other animals that look anything like that. And what impressed me is it was dead still, and he wasn't making any sound, even though he was moving that fast. Mm. Gee, just tell everybody. Yeah, that, that was pretty epic. Tell everybody where they can find World Bigfoot Radio, my man. You can find me over on Rumble Odyssey, BitChute, Bright Eon, and, of course, here on YouTube. And I also have support groups on MeWe and on Facebook. And I also want to mention, for the benefit of all the people that are single like me and maybe don't have families to go hang out with on Christmas, I'm going to be having two shows this weekend, a Christmas Eve special, Return to the Haunted Horse Ranch with Researcher X, and then on my regular Sunday time slopper, I have part two of Sabila Irwin talking about her research and showing some of the amazing stuff she's got too, which is really cool. Don't miss the thermal footage. Wow. Super Duke, you know what? We've got one more before Christmas with you, and I just want to say, man, you've really added to the high quality of our programming this year, my man. And we really do appreciate it here at Spaced Out Radio, everything you do with your support in uh, speaking us up on your own channel and being here a couple times a week to bring us the Cryptid Report. You're one of the true gems in this field, my man, and we appreciate you. Thanks, brother. You know, as they say about uh, Merlin in the movie Excalibur, Merlin, are you are you really real and are you alive and or are you just a dream? And he said, yeah, dream to some. To others, a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Really appreciate you coming on in for the Cryptid Report. Love you guys. I always enjoy being here. And you got one of the best audiences out there, Dave. And they're super brilliant, too. Appreciate that. Super Duke from World Bigfoot Radio. Once again, as we say goodnight to him, and we say thank you to Swamp Dweller for coming on in, and of course, Frank Falzon and Duffy Jennings for their great true crime book. We got Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal rocking in the background with Little Brothers watching. Bumblefoot is the official music of Spaced Out Radio, rocking us in and out of every single show. Get your horns up for the guitar god himself. Special thanks to everybody listening in, at work, at home, in your cars, wherever you may be. Thank you to everyone in our chat rooms tonight. YouTube, Twitch, Elgam, Facebook, Spreaker, Space Travelers Club, and on Twitter. I know you're out there somewhere. Remember this show is copyright by Spaced Out Radio and SOR Media Ventures Limited. Thank you so much for choosing to share your evening with us. Because together, my friends, we're watching. We own the night. Mr. Bumblefoot, we need a favor. We need you to take us home. Yes, the Wu train has docked for the night. But soon, my friends, we shall ride again. Your seats are always available. 
Your tickets never expire. And if you want to bring a friend, we've got room for them too. Good night. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Business today looks nothing like it did yesterday. While it's more unpredictable, its possibilities are endless. At ADP, turning unpredictability into an advantage is what we do. Using data-driven insights, we design HR solutions to help businesses work better, smarter, so they can think beyond today and find even more success tomorrow. HR, time, talent, benefits, payroll. ADP, always designing for people.